all right and hello everybody good day and welcome to another merged worlds dungeons and dragons story stream um appreciate you coming by and giving me a, another chance to tell my tale um phew, busy day busy day glad to see everybody popping in glad to see you here ashley hello michael um so uh as usual we're gonna continue from where we left off i'll do just a very brief recap and then we'll continue with our tale we're uh we're getting to the uh the meat here hmm hmm i uh, spent a decent chunk of time uh when the stream ended a couple of hours ago i spent a chunk of time reading over the campaign for the night make sure i remembered everything that i have to mention don't miss stuff uh, and then I set aside myself an hour to write and uh, spent some time writing more Merged World stuff. The continuation of the tale beyond what I ever played. Um, I got three pages written today, which is pretty good. Uh, considering it's mostly bullet point at this point. Um, just all the things I need to mention and, and such at the beginning of the new campaign. So pretty excited about that. Uh, but uh, we're still a ways from there. we got to finish this campaign, this section, and then there's another one after this before we get to the new stuff. So I'm uh, excited to cover it all. But thank you for coming by, as always. And if you're watching this today, tomorrow, or forever from now, it would be awesome if you wouldn't mind clicking the like button. If you haven't already, subscribing to the channel so you can hang out with us more often. All right, let's see. Where did we leave off? I'd like to give a minute or two for folks to show up, stragglers, if you will. But uh, we'll do a little bit of the recap. So, in last week's episode, Group 2, our group of, let's see, it was uh, Mercy and uh, Artemis that were off getting their mystical item, their artifact, uh, and finished scaling the ice tower and retrieving the Staff of Winter. Hello, Bright. Um, and then returned back home. Uh, Darsh's group had already returned home. Um, and then there was a wait for Group 3, and it took a while for Group 3 to finally be able to come home uh, and they came back in pretty rough shape. Um, and fortunately, everyone survived. Thank you, Chili Doggo, for the subscription. Um, but it was uh, it was rough on them. They had a rough time. Uh, they, they definitely had a harder time than everyone else. But uh, they did make it back. And um, our heroes now have all three of the artifacts that the wizard... Tobias has told them they would need. They have the Staff of Winter that Tobias took. There was the Bone Lance, which they told Darsh to keep. So he's got that on him. And now Group 3 has returned with the Hammer of Truth. Um, we left off right at the ending of their tale. So, I guess we'll keep going. <laughs> So, at the end of that, um, you know, everybody 
takes a little time to heal their wounds. Um, Tobias has uh, Art, Artemis send word to the temple, um, and Weston is summoned. Now, Weston is, if you remember, a paladin. Uh, traveled with Artemis and been involved in things. Nephew of Sir Nyklos, a hero of mine. And uh, he arrives, uh, and Tobias advises that uh, he is the one to wield the hammer. He's to carry that with him. Um, Wesson has just returned recently. He had gone off to the end of the battle to see that his, uh, help return his family home. Several of the paladins did not survive the war. I think we lost two or three, if I remember correctly. Wesson has returned now while this was going on and been made aware of what's been happening. Uh, Weston, touching this, can tell that this is not just a, you know, a magic item. This is an artifact. This is something of power and something definitely blessed by his god. He's honored to carry that, for sure. Um, he just doesn't know where he's supposed to carry it. Tobias like, we're going to get to that. Tobias says that there are a few more things he has to do to prepare for the next phase and he gathers everyone together, you know, once they're all healed up and such, to the main chamber, the, the banquet room, I guess you'd say, the entry hall of Castle Serenity, Serenity Keep. Um, and he starts, you know, not everybody in Serenity, obviously, but the primary, any of the knights that are there, Darsh and his people, Dandy and her husband, uh, Artemis and such. He gathers everybody, and he uh, kind of goes over What's next? He says, it's, it's going to take a little time to finish preparing everything. Hello, Wyatt. Uh, a pretty, pretty, you know, chunk of time. Not like huge, because I'm going to need a little bit of time to deal with this to get us things ready to go. I'm not sure how long it's going to take, but I'm going to be gone for a short while. While I'm gone, be prepared to travel. Um, when this all comes to, uh, when this all comes time to, to, to get the ball rolling, you may want to set some affairs in order because many of you will have to leave to go face this. He says, when that time comes, you need to decide who's going and who's staying. He says, when you leave, I will do my very best to cloak you from the eyes of Ormon through my magic as long as I can. You'll need to take a sizable group, but the more you take, the harder it'll be for me to cloak you all, the further you get from here. But I'll explain more a little bit later. For now, just put some thoughts into that. You don't have to make any hard decisions. I will return when I can. And opening up one of his little fancy portals, he steps on through, and he's gone. So a couple things, a couple weeks go by. Everybody's, you know, on edge, not sure when he's going to pop back or when he does, where all they're going to go. He keeps saying they're going to have to go somewhere, but he doesn't give him any more details than that. He's very, very vague, which means he's a professional wizard because that's how magic works. It's as vague as possible, um, but they've got some things going on. So there's a few things that happen during this several-week period, um, and a lot of them happen particularly around Mercy. 
So there's two things I have to talk about that will have uh, a pretty huge effect on Merge Worlds as a whole moving forward uh, that are going to kind of... Well, one of them is. The other one's just a side thing. One of them is important. We're going to do that one first. The other one's kind of secondary. Just uh, The other one's fluff to add to the story. <laughs> but this first one's really important. Um, so... Over the past several months, well, all this other stuff's been going on, and maybe preparing for war and so on. I've talked about how Serenity has drastically grown, much faster than normal. It's, it's definitely attracting a ton of people, and it's, it has come, become a city at this point. Small, excuse me, so, small city when compared with um, an Arduel, or especially Paxival, the largest city in the area. Uh, it's even smaller than Thorman, who's known as the smallest of the southern kingdoms. Serenity technically counts as the smallest. Um, but it's getting there very, very quickly. Um, the amount of lands that Mercy claims as part of Serenity uh, is actually equal to that of Thorman. Uh, it just isn't quite all as developed yet. So, as things grow, things start to happen that you would expect to see in a city. There were merchants. A merchant's guild starts to pop up. Uh, people who want to represent the merchants when dealing with Lady Mercy. You know, not that Mercy's a bad person to deal with. Of all the kingdoms, she's probably the best. But, you know, like any good group, these are a group of people that in any other city would band together to have, you know, work on common things. And a lot of that could be just handling disputes themselves. Disputes between products and this and who sells what and gets it from where. If a lot of that stuff can be self-regulated and they don't have to bring the crown into it, they're usually better off, Right? If the crown comes into it, then, you know, the concern is that they'll come in and take control of it. Uh, if the people can learn to govern themselves, there's less interference of the government. So, uh, a merchant's guild starts to pop up a little bit. Things like that, which is, ex which is to be expected. Um, there's a bit more travel from the southern kingdoms, Paxwell specifically, because uh, Paxwell at this point has built... Uh, a little bit of a town has started to pop up around the rim of the Valley of Sacrifice. You remember the Valley of Sacrifice is where the big war uh, versus Nylat's army happened very, very early on, and the Flying Citadel crashed there. And in its ruins is where there is the Realm Gate that leads here. Uh, they do not build in the valley. Number one, it's haunted. Like, really. <laughs> really haunted. Uh, so they stay out of the valley. Uh, plus, uh, Anytime anyone tries to build something in the valley, even the weakest thing, it collapses. It won't stay up. It's like the ground just won't support it for some reason. Uh, they take this as, assuming this is part of the whole haunting, magic mojo of the place, so they've learned that as long as they build outside the rim of the valley, things are fine. So even though they have to go down in the valley to pass through the realm gate, they're never accosted while doing so. The ghosts are not harmful in any way. Um, even Michael's been there a few times with Menandra, and it's the only undead type thing they've come across that Menandra's like, yeah, these are fine. Like, these are not, uh, you know, harmful. They're not, they're just more echoes than the past than they are any type of uh, undead force, per se. So, with that build up around Paxiwal, and uh, they have, Paxiwal has someone who oversees that, uh, probably a garrison lord or something, or a, a general who has access to a key. That opens up the realm gate, and that's where uh, Serenity hadn't planned it. And the biggest example of that 
is when it first came to Mercy's attention that Serenity had a thieves' guild. It had just never something she'd considered. It had never crossed her mind that at one point thieves would band together in her kingdom. Doing what? I don't know. Oh, hold on one second. I'm getting a little bit of lag here. There we are. Sorry, I was watching. YouTube had a little bit of a lag spike there, so if it looks like I'm not saying anything for a minute, I wasn't. <laughs> I was waiting to make sure that it came through, so... But, uh... Anyways, yes. Uh, and thank you, Jet, for the sub. I appreciate that. Uh, so... A Thieves' Guild pops up. How unexpected. Not something Mercy ever thought she'd be dealing with. Um, and, of course, she tries to use what access and what, what uh, I guess you'd say things she has at her disposal to try to figure out what's going on with that. Um, a couple things happen specifically with the Thieves' Guild that are important to note. Um, as any city has some form of thief, pickpockets, beggars, whatever the case may be. Um, it was very unregulated, and it's almost like overnight a Thieves' Guild came into play. And the Thieves' Guild, from what Mercy's able to learn, is quite strict. Uh, and the Lord of the Thieves' Guild, who takes a while to realize who that is, or to get a name, I should say. They don't ever know it is. It's to get a name. Uh, the the Thieves' Lord of the Thieves' Guild, whoever it is, stays very well hidden. And they get very little info. They even at one point try to send Dandy in to see if she can find it or see if she can get invited in or whatever. Um, but the Thieves of Serenity avoid Dandy like a plague. I mean, it's quite quite well known in Serenity that Dandy's best friends with the Queen. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the, the Temple of Light. I mean... While she may technically be roguelike in her uh, abilities and actions, she may be a high-valued uh, and respected member of the Thieves' Guild of Paxawal, um, and Thorman, I think, at this point. Um, they will not have anything to do with her in Paxawal, which is to be understood. They kind of thought that when Dandy went in on her first recon, and we role-played that a little bit when we were doing it, just uh, her trying to, to get the attention of Thieves... And she still sees the signs of thieves. She th she can see a thief doing being a thief and doing stuff, but whenever she tries to, you know, hey, I'm a thief too, or hey, what's going on? They just ignore her or just that will have nothing to do with her. So the thieves guild pops up, and criminal actions throughout Serenity increase yet flatline. And I want to explain what that means. The actions, the amount of criminal activity, there are more things happening. Pickpocketings, break-ins, things of that nature. But when I say by flatlining, they don't escalate. Um, there are no, you know, very few murders or something that could be attributed to like an assassin type kind of thing. I mean, there's always going to be some bar fight, drunkards get, you know, get in a fight and it goes too far and somebody kills the other because they walk around with swords on them. That just happens in this type of world and Mercy has to deal with that. Um, but 
the thieves themselves, you don't see a lot of things like assassinations. There are no kidnappings of that nature. Any of the big stuff seems to not go that high, but the small to medium level, as well as contraband and things of that nature, and uh, maybe even robbing of stagecoaches or merchants and things, those happen. Um, and there can be fatalities. I mean, it's, you know, but there's no like a targeted assassinations that, that that can be contributed to Thieves Guild, and nothing like kidnapping of adults or children. I know it's called kidnapping, but adults or children, stuff like that doesn't seem to fly. Um, so either they're very well hidden, or the Thieves Guild is specifically avoiding those type of criminal activities, um, and discussing it with her. Uh, knights and King Ulrich and such, uh, they come to the thought that maybe because the city is still relatively small, bringing too much attention on the big stuff might bring kind of the hammer of mercy down on top of them much harder than they really could deal with right now. So it made one of those things where they're just, they're still criminals, but they're not trying to cause too many red flags. So while mercy has, of course, things trying to, against just got her, the guard, the, the guards of serenity and the knights, and there's the the, the garrisons and all the police and whatever the case may be are always out for to try to stop crime and things. There's not like a huge concerted effort to snuff out all crime because at this point, much like I talked about before with the Merchants Guild, if the rogues are relatively policing themselves and keeping it minor, Mercy's still trying to stop that, but she's not in a situation where she has to devote a ton of resources to it. And Throughout this time, they've also been preparing to fight with Oromon. So she did not have time to waste on that. With all the stress she's going through, if they'd have done something really bad, she might have just been like, you know what, I've got ten battle mages. Just send them and get them in there and find them and you know, wipe them out. So she's been busy. They've stayed under their radar. But they are there. She's aware of them. And it's something that occasionally throughout the last couple mini-adventures and sections, little snippets of things that the Thieves' Guild would pop up. Until finally, it is they, they someone says the name, uh, and I say this because like you know they're obviously questioning thieves. They find where's the thieves guild? Who's in charge of the thieves guild? What do you know about the thieves guild? And no one really says anything. Uh, like they're very much afraid of the guild. The thieves are, yeah. Which is the way it should be, right? I mean. Thieves don't play. Don't play <laughs> when it comes to that stuff. Um, well, thank you, Wyatt. I appreciate that. Um, but finally, one of them makes one of the people that are being questioned uh, references a name that has never popped up before. Uh, Mercy's not there. She doesn't do that herself. She's got people for these things. Um, but one of her commanders comes to her with a, "Hey, this is the first thing of information, and it's kind of like it slipped out from this poor sot." Like this poor sot, you know, I don't. Once they said it, they realized they'd made a mistake and tried to walk it back, but it was too late. That they'd referenced the Black Rose. Now, whether that's a person or an organization or a location, they don't know. But they mentioned basically. The wrath of the Black Rose. That's kind of the that's kind of the sentence that came out. They were referencing the wrath of the Black Rose. So Mercy's very intrigued by that. 
something that she uh, she takes great note in. And so does Dandy. Dandy then again starts reaching out to her contacts, right? In the Thieves Guild of Paxawal, and the thieves she knows of, people and so on. She's like, have you heard of this? She gets no answer back, or no, we don't know what you're talking about. Never heard of that before. Everybody's using their resources, Draven, everybody. No, excuse me, no one can find any reference to Black Rose. Hello, Dark, and thank you, Gabriel, for the sub. So, there's that going on. So that was one thing I wanted to mention. The second thing, and again, this is more of just an aside to add a little more depth to the story overall, is while they're all kind of hanging out there after Tobias leaves, making plans and such, one day, um, you know, one of the guards, while they're all sitting there chatting, several of them, like they're not all there. Artemis is still running her temple. Danny and Michael still living in their house looking after their kids. All of them have guards because they're still worried about assassinations from Oromon, so there's always guards around Dandy's house. And Artemis goes nowhere without a whole contingent of Templars at this point, unless it's with Mercy or Draven specifically, because that's the same as having a whole contingent of Templars. Uh, but even in those situations, Lucas is pretty much always there too. Darsh is still staying as a guest. He has used the mirror... He wants to use the mirror to go back and tell everybody what's going on with his family, but no one knows how to get to the mirror except him, Jorn, Rokar, his brother, Doram, his captain he trusts, and his wife. Um, and the only people that aren't there with them right now are Doram and his wife, and neither of them have a key, because Darsh used the key to get in there by himself. So he has no way to send a message back, other than through the little crystal balls. He left his crystal ball with his wife, and so Darsh can chat with her through that and lets her know what's going on, make sure everything's okay. At this point, it's been several months. Uh, she was pregnant when he left. You know, checking in on that. He's like, this is what's going on. I'm trying to fight evil. But if you need me, I will come home. In every situation, she's like, no, we've got it. Things are going fine. I'm taking care of things. Just keep me informed. He's like, okay, cool. So... That's going on. But while they're kind of hanging out that day, and Darsh is usually found with Mercy. Uh, Nathalian, Jorn, and Garrig have the run of the city. and they've, they've de- Garrig has definitely spent a big chunk of time at the temple, because as a Minotaur, he's not had a lot of opportunity to hang out in other racist temples. and uh, He finds the... Oddly enough, the serenity of serenity. Like how... You know, late how how serene it is there and peaceful and such, mixed with the overwhelmingly militant guard style of Lucas, who has that place run like a military. He's like, this is best of both worlds. It's quiet. I can compute, commune with the gods. Uh, you know, because even him, as he's a cleric of of, new, of war of neutral, still stepping on holy ground of that, he's going to feel that. You know, he's going as a cleric. He's he's more in touch with the gods in general, um, and he's not the only cleric of his god. He may run across some humans or dwarves or whatever of the same god of war and getting a chance to talk to them and, and commodity of, of different races. It's an opportunity for him to, to meet up. Um, Nathalian and Jorn end up hanging out quite a bit themselves, just checking out the city, and they spend a lot of time with the different knights. They a lot of times will accompany the knights on different things that they're doing around the city just to kind of get a feel for this. It's their first time here, even though they've known about all these people for a while, to kind of see how Serenity rolls. But Darsh stays with Mercy most of the time. Because at any given moment, Tobias could pop in and say, pack your bags, and he's always prepped. And literally, his stuff could be packed in five minutes, and he's going to be ready to go. He has the least stuff to pack. I mean, he wears pretty much everything he brought with him. Maybe a clean loincloth, because, you know, ew. (laughs) But 
they're he's sitting there in the main room chilling with uh Ulrich and Mercy and probably a couple of the knights we'll say Flynn's there, you know, Quan who's usually around. Um and then just some miscellaneous captains talking about things, what's going on in the border, so on and so forth. When uh door opens casually, not like in a hurry, but just the door opens and they look up and uh a commander of the group comes up and uh, Mercy, you know, he basically stands there waiting for permission to speak. Mercy's like, yeah, what's going on? Uh, and he's like, my lady, visitors have come through the portal, the realm gate, um, and are approaching and wish to have meeting with you. Uh, it is a contingent from the kingdom of Firemoon, including one of their ambassadors. Uh, and I've been sent ahead to let you know that they're coming because they have something uh, of great importance that they need to speak with you about. Well, this was unexpected. In the middle of all this going on, the last thing they thought about was Firemoon's kingdom. But Tobias has been sending people from all over the place. That's why they got Balin, the, 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 the dragon and guy and all that kind of stuff. It's like, maybe they're sending something from Firemoon. Maybe he popped over there too. Who knows? So as usual, they prep up the stuff, get ready, make sure there's rooms ready for the contingent to stay. They're advised it's just a small group of uh, one ambassador and four or five guards. Or, you know, people that travel with him, maybe not necessarily guards. Um, but if you remember, it takes a bit of time to get from the portal to here. It's a long ride. It's like more than a day <laughs> kind of thing. It takes a while. So they, you know, they arrive the next day, horseback, whatever, uh, and are escorted up to the keep. Um, by then, of course, everybody's ready. Darcy's got his, he brought a set of nice clothes because you, you never know he's going to meet somebody business important. So he's all in his nice clothes and Ulrich and Mercy are prepared to meet them. It's been a while since they've seen a friend from uh, Firemoon. Except for Darsh, who hung out with Tabork. And he, it's not Tabork. They've already been... They already know it's Smallsius. Uh, Smallsius Early is one of the ambassadors and allies of Rafe Firemoon, King of Firemoon. Uh, the guy who kind of got this whole Merge Worlds thing started. Um, but yes. So... They're prepared. They meet him. He comes in. And, of course, uh, they're happy to see him. He's a friend. Uh, he's, he's, he's a human, but he's, again, relatively short. Um, he's known as he was a... He's very much like Quan. He's a warrior, but does a lot of roguelike stuff. If anything, he could be considered multi-class or dual, dual class. But uh, he's a knife fighter by trade, although he does use a short sword occasionally. But like Dandy, he carries a bunch of daggers on him. Dandy also has come up to the keep for this, along with Michael and uh, Baby Petal. Uh, because it's an opportunity to show off their kids to their friends, right? Who doesn't want to do that? So Smallsius arrives. The people that are with him are literally just traveling companions and such. No one named of importance. They're shown to a place where they can eat and drink or whatever. Uh, Smallsius is brought in. You get to say hi to Darsh. Uh, he begins right off the bat by apologizing. They've only recently learned about the Battle of Serenity and the, the Oromon attack, and had they known earlier, the Kingdom of Firemoon would have rushed to their allies' aid. Um, and Mercy's like, I definitely appreciate that. Time was of the essence. We really didn't have time to send for help. Because it's, it's not a quick jaunt for, for them. Once you pass through the portal that's closest to Firemoon, it's like a week and a half travel to get there. So for Firemoon to prepare a force and get back in the time of the runner, the war would have been over. So um, they definitely discussed during this conversation ways to keep closer ties. 
and you'll see why in a moment. I'll make a list. Yes, please, Brad. Yes, you have some. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll I'll make sure I leave five or ten minutes at the end of the stream to uh, answer any questions folks have. I've had people ask me to do that in the past, and I forget. Uh, so I'm going to try to hang out five or ten minutes at the end in case anybody has any questions about D&D, Merge World, any of the characters. I do shy away from Minecraft stuff during this stream just because I do Minecraft already 35 hours of streaming, and... Try to keep it off this one since this goes on an audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And thank you, those of you who may be listening to this on the audio podcast. Uh, <laughs> I try to stay away from the other stuff. Uh, but yeah, if you get D&D or Merge World questions, I will grab them from you at the end, I promise. I'll save some time to do that. Um, yes. So small, after the pleasantries and such, so and so, they get a little bit of an, he give, they give him a little bit of update of what's going on. Um, they're like, okay, cool. So, what brings you by? You don't just pop in for no reason. Uh, and you can understand, there's probably a bunch of people in this room, right? Michael and the kids, Starsh and his friends, and sidekicks, there's guards, probably several of the knights. Uh, and Smallsius gets very serious, and he's, he's not one to be serious. And speaks to Mercy and goes, um, it would be best if we may. I would like to speak with you and King Ulrich in private. This is a rather sensitive matter, and it's not that we don't trust anyone else, of course, but it's something that, uh, at least at this point, uh, he would rather me speak with you both directly. And they're like, hmm, ooh, okay, well, all right, sure. Um, and they ask him, escort him to the war room, which is a room just off the, that room. The war room is a section built off of the main chamber, and that's where there's a big map of Serenity that's constantly being added to, and there's tables and chairs where she meets with the generals and such, and they plan out all that kind of stuff. Um, so, there's that. Uh, William says, I've been wanting to get into DD. I've been watching your tutorials for two years now, so it's cool to see you being into it. Oh, yes, yes. This is a this is a story 30 years long, so uh, there's a lot into it. So, look, glad you're hanging out. Thank you. Um, oh, bye, Michael. Thanks for stopping by, sir. Um, so, yes. They step in there, um, and they're like, "Okay, excellent. Um, well, what, what is it? We, what is it we want to talk about?" And Smalls goes, uh, "I think it's best I allow my lord to speak to you." And he kind of reaches into his vest and he pulls out a crystal, not quite like the crystal that they have, which is this little sphere crystal ball that they set on a stand and it grows and they can talk into. Um, this is more like a, your classic prism crystal. Right, kind of like you'd see in the Superman Fortress of Solitude kind of thing from the old movies. You know, it's kind of like that long crystal. It's a bit pinkish as well. Uh, it's like at the end, it's kind of pointed, but it's it looks very rough. And they're like, okay, and he kind of sets it on the table and just spins it lightly, and it starts to spin. And it spins faster and faster for a few seconds, and then sure enough, an image of Ray Firemoon appears above it. Now, I want to stress that this is not Rafe talking to them. This is a message that's being left inside of the crystal. So they don't converse with it, but they hear what he's talking about, and then Smallsius fills in the details afterwards. Um, but at the beginning, it's greetings, my friends. I hope this, I hope, uh, hope Smallsius uh, and, my, and my allies find you well. Same thing. Sorry we heard about the battle. Had we known, we would have sent help. We need to definitely talk about a way of staying in closer touch in the future. Um, I've sent Smallsius to discuss with you a matter of great importance to me. Um, and 
That importance has something to do with the mage tower that you have in your city. It is well known that I don't have a large love of mages. And while I do not have an instinctive hatred of magic or wizards themselves, I, there are several wizards that live in my kingdom and several that I consider friends and allies, I am hesitant to allow a tower in my kingdom. The Brotherhood of Magic has pursued one for quite some time. Definitely they want to get one in every big city. And at this point, there's one's popping up in Thorman. There's already one popping up in Arduel. Which he's also very hesitant. Because remember, a wizard tried to take over his kingdom. That's what Darshan them helped Prince Christopher get. King Christopher. His house, his castle back. Um, but he, with Darsh, or no, with Rafe's family problems, remember his brother turned into an evil wizard who tried to take over the world and did destroy the world and create a whole new merged world. It's a very big story. Um, you should go back and listen from chapter one. <laughs> you don't know that. But um, he goes, you know, I am hesitant to allow one built within my kingdom. And yet I find myself in a very strange predicament. I have a son. You know this. Dandy's met the kid. So that was a couple years ago at this point. Several years ago at this point. When he was relatively a baby. When uh, Michael and Dandy went through Kingdom Firemoon and got to meet this, the, the prince. I have a son. And while I would never want to subject him to anything that could walk him down the same path as my brother, I find myself in a conundrum. Because while my son has definitely um, been born with my demeanors, smile, my eyes, my hair, my skills, whatever, uh, he's a good kid, he's a noble kid. From, you know, he's, a, he's still like a toddler, a little older than a toddler. He's, well, he's still a young boy. He's definitely showing the signs of nobility and the prince and caring and well-being for others, as I would hope. But while he may have inherited many of those traits for me, I have just recently become aware that he has also inherited a trait from my brother. It seems that like my brother, my son has been born with the ability to tap into the force of wild magic. The same magic that overtook my brother and caused him to become the fiend that he was. My son will not be a wizard. I will not allow that to happen. Yet at the same time, if he does not learn to control or suppress the gifts that he is born with, I will live in fear that they may one day also overtake him as they did my brother. I cannot help but ask if maybe my brother had been taught how to use or control those a little more as a child. He may not have taken the path he did. But that is beyond us now. We can only look to the future. As I mentioned, my son will not be a mage. I will not allow that. But I understand he needs to at least learn the basics enough to take control of this force that he can tap into. <laughs> and when you know it, I told the Brotherhood of Magic, no, they could not build a tower here. 
soon my son will need to take these lessons, will need to learn these things, and I understand that these may take maybe something he has to learn over a several year period. It's not going to be a short thing. But I do not want him to forget his other schoolings and trainings, his trainings of the gods and the holy forces that guide us, as well as his trainings of the swords, the bows, the axe, and the hammer. Those things that will help him be a warrior and one day be a king. And so I'm reaching out to you. Of all the places that I am allied with, of all of the cities and the kingdoms and the groups that represent them, there is none more than I trust you and your friends. Uh, you have stood beside me on the battlefield more than once against forces uh, many would, <laughs> would run in fear from and uh, help me take out my brother. I trust you all implicitly. And there is a mage tower in Serenity. I have spoken to the Brother of Magic, and they have agreed to take my son in and to teach him only what he needs to control the abilities he was born with. But they have to do that somewhere else. They're going to have to do that there. So with your permission, I would like my son to come to your kingdom and to learn from the mages in your tower. He will be there for several months at a time. Then he'll come home, back and forth, back and forth, until he has reached a point that he no longer needs their tutelage. This is asking a lot. I know this, because by asking the prince of my kingdom into your kingdom, that kind of puts you into a spot. I would ask that while he is there, he would also be able to continue learning the skills of a warrior. Uh, things that, again, you and your friends are more than ample qualified to teach him. This is a lot to ask, and I would understand 100% if you turned me down. Um, any such you know, cost of payment or whatever the case may be, room and board, whatever it would cost to cover the... Definitely I will foot the bill on all of that. Um, but I have no one else that I trust enough with the life of my only heir other than you guys. And there we are. If you accept, Smallsius has some information. We'll work out the specifics with you. Again, this is not immediate. My son is still relatively young. It may be another six months to a year or two before he has to take this step. Uh, the Brotherhood is sending a mage to help oversee him. It's very, very basic education uh, to a point that he will need to move to a safer location. Um, I'll reach out to you at that time. So, hope this is well. Hope you're having great. Don't let anybody kill you. Talk to you later. Maybe not quite like that, but something like that. You know. And then the image disappears. <laughs> Help me, Obi-Wan. No, but I mean, it, it, the hologram disappears and it's Smallsius. Who takes the crystal, tucks it back into his little jacket. He's a little guy. That hesitation, Mercy's like, of course. We'd be honored to have, you know, the son of Fire Moon here and we definitely will guarantee, you know, we'll, we'll see to his security needs, his safety needs, so on and so forth. Uh, Smallsius states that should, when the time comes, uh, he himself also would be coming to stay here. Not that they don't trust Mercy, but in case there's a something where they need him to go back or whatever, or, or, or Mercy needs to send him back, he doesn't want the kid here all by himself. So Smallsius would be come here. He'd be looking to probably purchase a small home. Uh, it'd be something that would be bought by the Kingdom of Fire Moon. It's not like a, what do you call it, the, um, you know, when a, when a kingdom has, or a city has a 
consulate. That's it. It's not like a consulate. Just a house they're going to get this Moses could live in. Uh, while, or, or he could stay at the castle. Whatever's good for Mercy. Uh, but they would want the son to basically stay at the keep, protected by Mercy. Because he is the royal heir to Fireman. And there may still be forces out there, echoes of his brother's past, that might try to seek revenge on Rafe through his son, or you know, use his son against him. So Mercy's like, well, of course, yeah, 100%. When the time comes, uh, both you and he and anyone else that Rafe thinks is important enough to be here, we will make arrangements for you all. He does not need to worry about payment and stuff like that. It's perfectly fine. We're happy to do so. So Smalls just is like, excellent. I will return to my lord and give him the good news. Talk about this. When, as we draw closer to the time, I'll return and we can work out specifics. Like my lord said, it could be, depending on how quickly the abilities manifest themselves, um, the mage, that is a, they have several mages that are friends of Rafe, or allies, say that they don't feel it's going to be anything immediate, but as he grows older, it's something that's going to have to happen. And Mercy's like, of course, sure, not a problem. So that's awesome, that's a great thing. That That is uh, something that's going to allow... Um, Serenity and Fire Moon to become a little bit closer, uh, which you know opens up <laughs> plenty of storylines for your old friendly neighborhood dungeon master. Um, but it's one of those situations where he's like, "Yeah, okay, sure." So that's not happening right now. That's down the road. That's probably in a later down the whenever happens. But I that that. That beginning seed of a potential storyline, if you will, that that thing has been introduced. It's kind of a fluff piece, but it was something I thought would be fun to throw in there. I haven't really developed anything with it yet, but yeah, it's there. So that happens. Some other stuff. They're looking over the, you know, preparing what's going on, trying to figure what happens. And the big argument that ensues is if they do have to leave to go fight and defeat the Emperor, who goes? Hmm? Right? Who goes on that mission? Oramon is a long ways away. Mercy has been there. Maybe Tobias can teleport him there, but on the chance that they can't, that's a long distance to travel with nobody left at home. So, of course, you can imagine that our four heroes, Dandy, Darsh, Mercy, and Artemis, all can't take their kids and they want someone there to protect their kids, they all want to leave their spouses. Uh, well, Darsh, he doesn't have to worry about that. Darsh is the only person here who's not in this problem. Uh, Darsh has... The only people with Darsh is Garrick, Nathalian, and Jorn. And he's like, you guys want to come? Sure. Okay, I'll take them. <laughs> he's the easiest of all four of them. Uh, but you can understand that Michael, Ulrich, and especially Draven are not keen on the ideas of sending uh, their loved ones into this worst place ever without them. And the arguments ensue. And there's just, and literally, we role-played some of this. We role-played some of these conversations. It was a lot of fun for me um, to be those individual spouses who have a problem with being left at home, but at the same time are also responsible for protecting a temple or a city and a kingdom or their children. Rough spot to be. They even at some point tried to say, well, how, what if you guys stay and we went? Like, that wasn't even considered. Mercy's like, there's no way in the world I'm going to sit here while I send you guys in to defeat the Emperor. There's no way that's going to happen. I did 
teasingly imply that you guys could stay here and we could do it. <laughs> They're like, yeah, what happened to this D and D adventure? We just sat here and waited for four months to see if we won. Like that'd be the most boring D and D adventure of all time. So there was none of that. There was no, we'll sit here and eat pie. Let us know how it goes. Um, <laughs> so that ends up becoming the thing. And it's only a week or two later. It's a few weeks, not that many. Two weeks, three weeks. It was some time. And once again, Tobias graces their presence by teleporting directly into that main chamber, which startles the guards and everybody in the room every time. Except Draven. Draven seems to be able to have a small scent, like, like he can smell the magic coming. He, he'll look his head up and he'll look in the direction. And that's how Mercy and some of them get used to it. And they see go... And then you've got to remember that Draven has a little bit of abilities when it comes to portal itself. His mother could open portals, not only from place to place, but world to world or plane to plane. Uh, her portal abilities were incredibly strong. And while he can't open those portals, he does have the ability to close portals. Could he close Tobias's portals? Hmm. We don't know. But, sure enough, Tobias pops back in. Um, and with him again is Edwin. because he, He's always taking Edwin with him. He never did bring back that cleric of uh, cleric of time, the one that he, he took from the battlefield when he took Edwin. He has assured her that she's doing important things that's assisting them in this situation as well, uh, but that she should they shouldn't be looking for her to come back anytime soon uh, because she's doing other important things for him. Um, so he says, my friends, the time has come. It is time for us to finally make our move against the emperor and his lackeys. You must travel a long way. Let's talk about it. Oh, I'm sorry. I, f I forgot one thing. I forgot a thing. Let me cover this. A day or two before Tobias shows up, Balin arrives. Remember Balin was the dragon hunter who ends up being actually a dragon? He returns. He's still in his human form. He's not flying around as a dragon. But he returns in his human form and greets them and says that he searched as far as he could, but he, far he could, but he cannot find where Sirik went. Sirik was that villain, right? That was the, the big evil dragon that killed his family and he's been hunting all this time. He says that he believes that he's gone west, though there seems to be some type of magical force that uh, is repelling me and keeping me from going that direction. I wasn't sure what else to do, so I came back here hoping that your wizard friend might be able to assist us. So he's also hanging out there when Tobias returns. That's important. I'm supposed to say that. <laughs> uh, but, 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 but. Tobias has returned and says, time for us to move against them because the Emperor is also moving forward with his own plans. Tobias says that Sirik and the Emperor, which is what interests Balin, have both left the kingdom of Oromon and have headed further, further west into the Empire of Ormond. Tobias explains that he believes he knows where he's going. His research has shown him that there is an ancient, ancient tower somewhere in the lands of Ormond, which I must stress are massive. It's so far the single largest chunk of an individual world to be pulled through merged worlds. I stress that a lot. I want to stress that again. It's massive the amount of space 
that came through with Ormon. So he believes that he's moving towards this ancient tower to finally move forward with what has been his end goal this entire time. He's going to try to summon his goddess into physical form. He's going to try to bring her to life. Basically creating an avatar. So gods could pop into worlds from now and you know, occasionally and things. There are rules for that. Um, if you ever play D&D, there are things that can kind of control what gods can do. And it can differ from place to place or world to world. But in Merge Worlds, gods have access to the world. But they have some limitations. They cannot physically walk the land and interact with it. The only one who can is a demigod, Zoltan, and Anyana themselves, the god of chaos and goddess of order. It is Omniana that regulates basically how much access the other gods have. But the emperor believes he's found a way to summon his goddess into a physical form. If he is successful, that gets around some of those rules and bad things will happen. I stress that because Tobias knows. He's like, I can tell you, if he is successful, a darkness will sweep across this new world, blocking out any sources of light or hope. Kingdoms like Serenity will be snuffed out by the darkness that she will overrun. And we cannot allow that to happen. And his friends are like, we agree. <laughs> and they're like, okay, point us in that direction. Which way are we going? You said west? What are we doing? He says, you must go and you must find this tower, though I do not know exactly where it is. This is a tower that specifically was built by the gods on the world that Ormon originally came from. It's lost from my ability to see it. And there are a few things that are. You need to find a way to the tower. Goes, I cannot go with you. There's no way for me to come across it. Because of the magic and the things that I'm involved in, I can't go there. As well as the Emperor is specifically doing some things keeping me from doing so. And neither can Balin, as he's probably told you, unable to travel to the west like he would like in search of his nemesis, Sirik. But, if you can get there, and you can open up the sands of one of my hourglasses, if you can take and open the hourglasses, I can then create a portal allowing Balin and I to join you there. If you can get to this tower, we can join you. Now, while you're gone, I'll be here staying in the city, helping to protect Serenity. Because you're going to need to take a decent-sized force with you. I don't know how many people the Emperor has, but he has tens of thousands of soldiers and such at his disposal. Though a hundred of them doesn't match one of you guys. So you'll need to decide who's going and who's not. If you are successful and you get there and you open the portal, I will come to join you. But at that point, I will not be here. Whether or not someone can use that moment against Serenity, I don't know. But once I go there, I can't just immediately pop back here. We're going to be involved. So you'll need to make sure there's at least someone here to oversee your kingdom. Uh, I'm not going to run it while you're gone, so someone needs to run it. I'm just going to be here protecting it, while at the same time using my magic to cloak you all from the Emperor's eyes. Uh, my rune magic is something that is his 
spells can't see through. But the more of you there are, the harder it will be for me to cloak you, and the further away you get the same situation. Um, so it will take a lot of my power to keep you cloaked as long and as far as I can. He says he'll provide an hourglass once they get there, bust it open, he can make a portal. He and Balin will arrive and assist him. He says you will, ve- you will very much have to travel far. This travel should be, this travel could take months and I have no idea how far it goes. I don't even know how far Oromon goes. There's a section of the world over there, of this new world, I'm not familiar with yet. But I know it's, it's there. The tower still must exist, and I believe that's what he's looking for. And if he finds it, and he's successful, this world is doomed. Uh, let's see. He also advises that <clears throat> the best route there would be to go north of Oromon, Instead of going through the border like they normally do, which she assumes is going to be watched, because that's where the battle was and such. Instead, go up and north. Wait, let me see. Up north and east. This would be good for you guys, I think. I think this is right. Is that east? I can't even tell. This would be east if your camera's looking there, but I don't know if it's flipped. <laughs> I believe east. Or is that east? I don't know. you got to go west. You're going to go north, west, up and over around a great mountain range, and down back into Ormon that way. It's uh, take a little bit longer, but I think it's the best way for you to enter undetected. Because when I'm cloaking you from their magic, you're visible. I'm not turning you invisible or anything like that. Somebody can still see you. So walking across the border where I'm sure he has his spies, just like you have your spies there, uh, would not be beneficial. He says that they have four days to make their arrangements and be prepared to go. That's the window he's, that he's foreseen that they have to then take off at that point. It'll be up to them to survive to reach the tower. He'll help as, and cloak them as long as he possibly can. Uh, let's see what else. It will take several months of travel minimum. They'll be gone for quite a while. So, they have four days to decide who's going to go. The arguments begin again. <laughs> Until finally... They managed to hammer out a list. Let's talk about it. These are the people that will be going. Mercy, Artemis, Dandy, and Darsh. I think we all knew that. They're the four main characters. They have to go. They will not be bringing any of their spouses. Ulrich, Draven, and Michael, and obviously Lyra for Darsh, will not be coming. They will be staying here to oversee Serendi and protect it. They are the next strongest group of people that they pr- that they have, especially when you bring Draven into the, the mix. Darsh is going to bring Jorn, Garrick, and Nathalion. You talk to them about it, they're like, we're there with you, sir, not a problem. All three of them are going. Easy sauce. Mercy is going to bring Seamus, Quan, Lars... Wade and Magnus. Magnus is the head of her of her uh, battle mages. They don't have a lot of mages in their group, and they thought it'd be good to have a pretty powerful one, especially one who's good at combat. As I discussed a while ago, telling this story in the early uh, a few episodes ago, when they had the war, the mages made a huge difference because that's one thing that Oromon does not have is mages. Artemis will be bringing Miasha and Weston, and per Tobias' urging, 
the two elven guards that have been pretty much protecting her, right, since they were gone, and Lucas. There's not a force in the world that's going to keep Lucas from going with Artemis, which, to be honest with you, Draven's okay with. Like, Lucas is going, I feel a little bit better about it. Even though he's nowhere near as powerful as me, he is just as devoted, sometimes if not more. So that is a big chunk of people. They would like to take more, but they're also afraid of taking too many. I was very, very open about the fact that if they take too many, it could fail before they even get started. But if they don't take enough, they won't have enough to beat them. So it's really about finding that happy spot in the middle. Uh, I think that they chose a good group of people there. I, that's who I expected. There's a couple people I thought they might take. I actually thought that they might take Tevin as an additional healer, but she just, she decided to take Miyasha instead. Uh, Miyasha is actually right up there with Tevin almost. Tevin's a little bit more powerful than Miyasha is, but uh, Miyasha's going, which was nice because Miyasha's never been on a real adventure with these guys. So, that's the group. They have four days to prepare. Spend a little bit of time with their kids, talk over what's going on, they make their plans. During this, during these four days, two things of note happen. The day before they're about to leave, later in the evening, Artemis has a knock at her door. Draven is there, and so is Tevin. I mean, he's still there because he just went with one of the groups in the adventure. So Draven really hasn't taken him back out to the woods, or he hasn't gone back to the woods himself. He's been hanging out, trying to see what's going on. And a lot of times when Draven and Artemis are off dealing with stuff at the keep, Tevin is the one hanging out. He's like an uncle, right? He's the one hanging out, taking care of Seraph. Seraph's already asleep by this point. Um, but Lucas is there. And Draven lets him in, and uh, a little interested, the fact that Lucas is carrying a very large sack. That's oddly shaped, but it does clank like it's rather metallic. Something inside is metallic. And, uh, Lucas says, I, I, I apologize for bothering you so late, my lady, but I know we're leaving upon the morrow. Um, there is something, this, that I would like to take with us, if we can, I was wondering if I could put it in your chest of holding. Obviously, I don't want to carry this big old sack around. Um, but it's something I'd like to take with us if I can. And she's like, okay, sure. And she puts her hand out to touch the, 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 the bag. And he pulls it and he's like, my lady, no disrespect. But it is very important to me. You do not touch this. I can't explain why, but I'm, I can only ask that you trust me. It's important that I bring this, but it's important that you not touch it. She's like a little surprised, but she trusts Lucas. Lucas isn't going to do anything that's going to cause her problems. I mean, Lucas is the most devoted, next to Draven, sometimes more, <laughs> person in the world to Artemis. And so she's okay. So she opens up the chest of holding, and he climbs down there, lugging whatever it is himself. And it seems like it's a little, pretty heavy, but not... One moment. Sorry, I just sneezed. Um, you know, it's not like a it's like a giant weapon bag or anything like that. But he does take it. You can hear a bit of clanking and such. And he takes it and puts it in a very back corner of the chest of holding uh, next to the barrel of pickled fish. 
and it's tied off really, really tightly. In fact, it's got some chains around the top of it to keep it held closed. They didn't see it move or anything yet. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to, or am I? I mean, it probably won't, but it could. I'm just saying. <clears throat> Lucas thanks them, wishes them a good rest, says he'll be ready to go tomorrow. Around this same time, Mercy is walking through the halls of Serenity Keep. She's making her way back to the private chambers so she too can rest. She's been meeting up with some of the generals and such and commanders and talking about <clears throat> defenses and things that she wants done while she's gone. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, <clears throat> Ulrich has stayed behind to do some last minute stuff. He's going to be staying anyways. Uh, but she's going to go up and get some rest because they know they're leaving today. And uh, she's been very busy for the last few days making arrangements. She had the most to prepare than everybody, right? She's leaving a whole kingdom behind. And baby Artis is being looked after by Quan at the moment. Right? Yes. Quan <laughs> at the moment. She makes her way towards him. And as she's going, it's, it's pretty late at this point. She passes a guard occasionally, but most of the, the halls are empty, other than the few guards that, you know, wanted the halls for protection. The night shift, if you will. And she's walking down the hallway, and for just a second, she's like, hmm. Just that moment, she's like, hmm. Like, odd. That's the reaction. Just I know she's odd. And then she spins. And as we know only Mercy can do, her morning star appears into her hand. And she turns her morning star, ready to use it, at the person standing in the shadows. <clears throat> she sees him smile. The gentleman stepping out of the shadows, very so slowly, holding his hands up, showing he's unarmed, is a man that she has never seen before. His hair is Kind of like a light, dirty blonde. Comes to his shoulders. Uh, looks well kept. He's dressed very finely. She can see that he has a dagger on one side and a sword on the other, though he's made no movements towards his weapons. He's a, a rather thin face. You know, almost like a hawkish kind of look. It would be a way I would describe that. Like a bit of a thin nose that curves down a little bit. Um, not unattractive, relatively attractive, actually, you'd say. But just, you know, kind of that, that little hooked nose thing kind of gives a little personality there. And he smiles. He goes, my lady, I do not come here with any issues. I mean, no harm whatsoever. I'm only here to talk. Mercy lowers the weapon a little bit. She's looking at this guy, and she's sizing him up. And she's like, I'm pretty sure I could kill this guy. Like, I mean, it's like he may have some skills. I'm looking around. He's got a ring on. It could be magical. He's not really wearing any armor, per se, but he's wearing some light leathers. He's got a couple pouches on his belt, but they're fastened pretty tightly. Her first instinct, this is not a guy with a lot of magic. This looks like a thief. That's her first thought. A thief or an assassin. She's like, who are you to skulk around my home, my, my home at night? He's like, I meant no disrespect. I just felt that, that it was important we speak privately. There are some important matters that I think we need to discuss. 
she looks at him and she goes, Thieves business, I'm assuming? That's what she said to the young lady who runs her. Thieves guilt business, I'm assuming? And he smiles. He goes, is there really any other kind? So she kind of steps back a little bit. She kind of crosses her arms. Sets her morning star against the wall. Because again, in her mind, she can, it can pop into her hand in a second. She doesn't have to be holding it. She's not wearing any of her armor to sheath it in a belt to pull her pants down. Kind of thing. She's regular clothing. She can pull it up and eat. She's, got a, she's always got a couple of her magical rings on and such. She's got some magic gear of herself. So she's feeling relatively okay at this point. But she steps back a bit before she sets it down. And she goes, so am I finally getting, so I'm finally getting to speak with the uh, mythical Black Rose then, huh? And the man gets a smile on his face and he goes, you honor me too much, my lady. But no, I am not the Black Rose. I am only one of her thorns. She's like, what does that mean? It's like, the identity of the Black Rose is something only a very few know. Those of us who do know, who specifically see that her will is done. Well, we're very commonly known as the Thorns. Don't mess with the rose. You'll get pricked. Bye, MT. Thanks for coming by. <laughs> and thank you, Michael. Yes, we hit 14.1 today, actually. She says, ah, so the black rose is a woman. He smiles and goes, and what a woman. <laughs> with a bit, bit of laugh, like a chuckle under his breath. He goes, you flatter me too much by comparing me to her. No, I am not her. But I am here on her behalf. It is our understanding that you and many of your allies and protectors will be leaving here very soon. And you'll be taking many of those who protect the kingdom with you. Now, it's important to state at this point that Mercy has not made this common knowledge. They're going to relatively try to sneak out of here. Early in the morning kind of a thing. Um, there was no intention of letting it mass known that they're just gone. Obviously, it's going to be noticed eventually. when They're all disappeared and they don't see any of these people. But they're going to try to sneak out to try to get a head start before any spies may get that message to Ormon. She's like, I'm intrigued you know that. He goes, I thought you might be. But not worry. Your secret is safe. We have no intention of doing anything to inhibit your journey. In fact, we wish you very well. It is imperative that the Kingdom of Serenity continues to grow bountifully, and it will only do so under your wonderful leadership. And so my lady sends you a message that while you are gone, the guilt will also be seeing that serenity is protected. Our actions will remain minimum while you are gone, but we will ensure that any one who seeks to do harm in any way to the kingdom of serenity is dealt with. Anything we learn of any attack, spies, of which, for the record, there are three currently. And he reaches and he hands her, holds out a scroll. 
she says for it and she takes it and she opens it up she looks at the names and he's like those three are, are spies of Oramon as we speak three you may want to have dealt with before you go information such as this will definitely be passed to the king whenever it comes to us we will ensure that while you are away serenity is protected on many fronts Mercy's like, I want to say thank you, but surely you're not doing this for just the kindness of your hearts. You're, there's a reason why you're helping in this situation. And again, he gets this big smile. Smile's kind of cocky. starting to irritate Mercy a little bit. This big old smile every time she says something. She uses the term smarmy. The young lady who plays Mercy uses smarmy a lot. for the When she was talking to the ambassador from Oramon, she called him smarmy. This guy has a little bit of that same feel, but more dangerous, but a bit more sincere. The guild thrives in this kingdom, and we have done nothing specifically to draw your ire. As serenity grows, so do we, as do opportunity for business dealings of our nature. So we definitely want you to return successfully. We want you to be successful because the last thing we want is to this land fall into the say hands of Oramon. That's not the kind of kingdom we want to deal with. So again, while you were gone, I am only to give you my lady's uh, promise that in no way will she act against you or the kingdom. In fact, she will see to it that any assets at her disposal will also seek to protect these lands while you are gone. And our actions will stay at a minimum. While your protectors are away, we shall assume those rules. Roles. Sorry. Again, Mercy's like, again, I'd like to say thank you, but I feel like there's more to this that you're not telling me. And, he's, and he looks at her and he goes, and that's why you're a queen. Because you're much, much smarter than the rest of them. He goes, we may, he goes, I'm sure that in the future you and I shall meet again. Uh, when the day comes, I hope it will be in such as pleasant circumstances as we find ourselves now. Before he goes, he tells her that his name is Valentino. And that he is one of the Black Rose's thorns. He, he stresses that. That there's more than one. Okay, it's important that that, that hint come across here. Mercy, Mercy's like, she goes, I have to ask. If I was to cap, if I was to take you right now, imprison you, torture you, interrogate you, to find out who she was, would you tell me? And he just shakes his head. That smile never disappears. And she goes, why? Like, why do you work for this person? And he looks at her and goes, My lady, you have within you, at your disposable, the ability to do horrendous, horrible, and painful things to me, should you choose to. But there is absolutely nothing you could do that would even begin to compare with what she could do to me. And his face gets serious for the first time in the whole conversation. And there's like a glint in her eyes, like, for just a moment, he's like, 
this dude is terrified. Like, this guy is being smarmy and cocky, but this dude is terrified and not of me. He's being very careful to only vaguely give answers to some... Because the, the, the exchange, there was some more banter back and forth, of course. You know, Mercy asking some questions, but most of him being very vague and around it. But through that, she very much learns that this guy's probably pretty skilled. Um, he's very quiet. Most he obviously got past all the guards and such. Mercy was able to you know kind of pick up his thing there, but barely. She's very well trained. Hello, Colonel. But uh, the big thing is, is this guy is a thief or an assassin or something because she can tell from the way he carries himself the man knows how to fight. She thinks she could take him. But he is terrified. She saw it for just that brief instant. She sees this dude is being very careful not to say something wrong. Because if he does, he's going to be basically dealing with a fate worse than death. <laughs> and he just, you know, at the end of the conversation, he thanks her for her time. Kind of gives a little bow thing. He wears a cape, too. He's, you know. He does not wear a hat. I stress that. This is not the man in the hat. I had to stress that to them, too. Because he's like, is he wearing a hat? I'm like, it's not the man in the hat. This is not the hat guy. Calm down. There's no hat on this guy. <laughs> but then he smiles and just casually walks down the hallway. Goes down the end, turns turns to the right, towards it. You know, like, just not a care in the world. Mercy ends up picking up her morning star and making her way back to her room. Like, great. This is something else I'm going to have to tell Ork. He's going to have to watch out for while I'm gone. Because... That whole, hey, we're going to look after it while you're gone. Nice. And these three names are definitely going to get looked into tonight. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's this this uh, this Black Rose may be a bigger problem than they thought. You know what I mean? If she's spilling that much fear into this dude, does she really... Does, does Mercy know what this person's really been doing in her city? And that's the fear that she had at this point. We haven't found her doing anything really bad. But maybe that doesn't mean she's not doing it. Maybe we're just not finding it. Um, and that... Exactly, Ashley. Everything costs something. You know what I mean? And, and again, what, what he, was very, he was very sincere when he said, being in a kingdom you run is way better than being in a kingdom Oromon runs. And that's probably true. You know, Oromon it probably has little to no Thieves Guild... Because nobody has anything. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where the crown most must. And there is no prison. There's no questions. You do... If anyone thinks you're a thief, they'll probably just kill you. You know what I mean? There's, there's no playing around with that. So, Ormond's not the place to be a thief. Plus, how hard, how hard has it have to be to be a thief, right? A sneaky criminal thief when the people in charge worship the goddess of lies and deceit. Like... They're not going to see through anything you do. You know what I mean? You're not going to see through any of that. So, a concern. Those were, uh, we've, we've talked, like I said, not a whole lot is action-y happened today, but I've opened the door so far to a lot of potential down-the-road things. Uh, and it was important for me to get those done at this time, during the story, uh, for later on in these characters' lives. Later on could be two days from now, it could be two years. But I wanted to get those seeds planted, multiple of them, to give myself those options, because I have a path for all of them. Some more fluff to add to the story, some more actually affected to the story. So I wanted to touch on those things. So 
So sure enough, early morning comes, everyone's rested. Quan and everybody is packed up, pretty much ready to go. Um, early, early in the morning, Artemis and her allies, Weston, oh, did I say Weston's coming? Yeah, Weston. Oh, um, uh, no offense here, but you fit the perfect description of a D&D Reddit mod, Discord mod. Really? <laughs> Excellent. I, I will take that as a compliment. That's not, I'm not offended. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, but, uh, you know, Draven sneaks everybody else over to the keep, over to the keep in the chest of holding, right? And the same kind of thing is going to happen. Everybody's going to climb down into the chest of holding there in the keep, and then Draven's going to take them out of the city. Because Draven can get out of the city without pretty much anybody finding out faster. And it, the chest of holding's a good size, but it's going to be a tight squeeze, this many people. Especially since, what, three of them are minotaurs, right? Yes, three of them are minotaurs. Garrick, Jorn, and Darsh. These are big dudes. And the room is tall enough that their horns don't touch the roof, by the way. It's a relatively tall room. There's a ladder that leads down into it, by the way. But they, uh... Everybody, many of them are having to stand. The important part, again, to remember, inside the chest of holding, things don't move. If somebody has the chest of holding and it's many, and they shake it, nothing happens inside. It's an interdimensional space. That, by the way, because I have been asked this again recently to confirm, is immune to the interdimensional space rule. The interdimensional space rule in Dungeons & Dragons you can't put a bag of holding in a bag of holding or they will both blow up. And everything that's in the bag of holding will be lost because it's technically a pocket in another plane of existence and the way to access them is gone. The chest of holding is immune to that. But I do enforce that with the rest of the bag of the holding stores. Don't put bags of holding in bags of holding. I do allow bags of accessibility which technically are kind of the same thing. But they're much smaller. Bags of accessibility could technically probably go in a bag of holding. I've just never tried. But you do not put a bag of holding in a bag of holding. Common knowledge, bad juju. Don't do that. So, it has happened. Everybody gets in the chest of holding. Draven bolts out of town. It takes an hour tops. Probably less. Again, the more people that are inside the chest of holding... Uh, the, the more people that are inside, the, the quicker you run out of oxygen. That's something that they have. I have explained to them very early on. They know how to calculate how many people can be in there for how long in order. And so normally, Draven will run 20 minutes, pop the chest open, fill it with air, close it again, run 20 minutes, pop the chest open. Uh, they have to do that with that many people in there. But eventually, he goes. Or he's going northwest. He's going, and he bolts past super fast. And he pulls and gets a good distance away, well off the beaten path. They're not taking horses. They're going by foot. They don't know exactly the terrain. They know they're going to go up and around in the mountains. Um, they don't have a specific path. Tobias said that up and around through the mountains, or through the mountains, would probably be the best bet. Um, from what few maps he's been able to find of that area, uh, there appears to be some type of path, or maybe even way around them, maybe a trail or something. Um, and hopefully it's not too rough. If it is, they may have to come back around. But he still thinks it's better to take that gamble than to cross the border anywhere else. They can't go south because there's more border, more mountains that way. And that one runs right into Thorman. And there's no crossing those mountains. So north, 
west or straight west through Oramon is the only option they got. So they travel. They travel for several days. They actually go north a little bit further than they had originally hoped because they have to make a wide, wide range around New Kender home, right? Remember, there's that Kender city that's up there, Kender town. It's uh, several days away, but the last thing they want to deal with is to walk through a Kender city and walk out the other side missing half of their stuff. Wormhole to an astral plane. No, sir. Not traditionally, anyways. If they've changed that in fifth, they might have. You lose it all if that happens. So, plus, if I remember correctly, the astral plane is literally astral. There are no physical construct constructs. You can't put something physical in the astral plane. So, a bag of holding open to the astral plane wouldn't work because they'd become astral. Hmm. Interesting. Mercy, of course, is carrying that little, uh, carrying one of those. Well, hourglasses, Tobias gave her. He's like, break it, open it, whatever. As soon as the sand is released, I will know where you are and I can open up a portal to it. I explained a little bit about that at the end of last episode, how, the, how that works. So they travel northwest. They go around Kendertown. I can't remember the name of it. It was Kenderhome or Kenderville or something like that. New Kender something. They go around that and they start traveling up and around through a mountains. Now, they've not really been this direction uh, ever. They've been north and east and such. So they've never gone far to the northwest. So this is all terrain that's new to them. They've never seen any of this. Uh, so they don't have any specific maps other than what crude ones that Tobias gives them. Uh, and the maps uh, at first make them a little bit nervous uh, because... The maps are very, very old. Can anybody imagine why that would be a problem? Uh, second edition is what I played, Greg. Right? Um, but the maps appear very old. Uh, and it was Dandy who first notices the problem with that. How are there old maps of Merge Worlds? Merge Worlds has only existed for less than 10 years. These appear to be relatively old maps. Now, that doesn't mean they're not maps of the original world. But it seems a little odd, at least in their design. So, after traveling for several weeks, I think it was two, two and a half weeks, yes, two, two weeks and a couple days, they're in the mountains at this point. There is a, a trail, a path, if you will, that looks like it's a sands for a few hundred years. Ago. That is correct. He was in the sands for 732 years, I think it was. That is correct, actually. But uh, they sure enough come across the path. The path itself almost looks like it was an old road. Um, kind of. And I say that because it's cut out of the rock itself. Like, they're going through the mountains. It's a very wide cut. And, and when they're going along and you're seeing it, it's very evenly cut. I won't say smoothly cut. It's still, it feels like rock. But it's very evenly cut. Um, 
I would I would give it like an example of this. Imagine if you built a bunch of piles of snow, right? Each one a couple feet in height. Put them around each other. And then somebody took a brick and set it and dragged it through that. Perfectly lined square edges. Does that make hopefully that kind of makes sense? So like if you're walking in that path the brick made, there'd be edges of snow in the mountains. Like something was something either big came through there that was relatively square. Because again, the edges are like basically 90 degree angles at some points. Um, or they were cut that way to allow something through. But it's a good size. Now let me see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There are 18 people in this group, by the way. Three of which are minotaurs. Now, I will say... That one thing this group did that was relatively smart is they brought one of their crystal balls with them and they left one with Ulrich. Uh, Darsh doesn't have one. He left his with his wife. Dandy and Artemis each have one. They left. They don't normally bring that stuff with them. Uh, they leave them back as well. But they did bring one. Ulrich has one and they brought Artemis's. Dandy's was left with Michael in just in case of emergencies. Um, but they did bring one, so they could occasionally give them updates on what they're doing. Although they tried to do that to a very minimum, because if you'll remember, Ormon has a bad habit of finding magic. And Tobias is cloaking them, but the more magic they use while cloaked, the more likely that the Emperor may see through that. Because again, it's very hard to hide magic. But it's even harder to hide magic... When the people who are looking for it worship the god of lies and deceit. <laughs> Again, someone who is the king of hiding stuff and knows how that stuff works. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it's really a bad goddess to be facing in that kind of situation. Pandora is the goddess of lies and deceit, by the way. Which kind of makes sense. Now, it's not something we, I've ever really brought up in, in, in hardcore. I'd hoped people would pick up on this, but Lies and deceit. Weston, the paladin, worships the same god that Mercy does, which is Zorn, god of truth. He's a paladin of truth. And Mercy worships that. It seems only fitting that the emperor, worshiping the goddess of lies and deceit, should come in such contact and such you know, bang head forces against serenity ruled by Someone who worships the god of truth. So, it's almost like these two were very... Of all the different kingdoms and such, it would make sense that Serenity would be the biggest thorn in his side because he's the diametrically opposed god to his goddess. And vice versa. It makes sense why Oromon would be the one Serenity would have problems with. So they travel through these mountains, and while it does... They, they do consistently find themselves going up. Still, the path stays smooth. Uh, relatively. Obviously, it's worn some. It doesn't look like anything's traveled through here in a very long time. Um, and the few... They've got two expert trackers. And that's Quan and Dandy. Right? But they also have Nathalian. He's an incredibly well-trained elf. While he's not maybe not as good in mountains, he's still an elf and knows how to track things. And they got the two other elves that are protecting Artemis. So a lot of people here with some tracking abilities. 
um, and skills and such. And Darsh has a couple of his own as well. But as they're traveling through here, there's no signs that anything has come through here in a long time. And using the spells and such and the experience of the different skills that people have, um, it is deduced that nothing has come through here since Merge World was Merge World. That's the belief at this point. There's no signs that anything's been through here in at least 10 years. Merge Worlds, at this point, is getting close to 7 or 8 years, I think. In theory. And we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. The Merge Worlds time loop is something that throws everything off when it comes to that stuff. But we'll say around 7, 8, 10 years at this point. Somewhere it's less than 10 years. Now, Tobias stressed he does not know what's, you know, this area was. He just found this on a map, and it'd be a path that would lead them up and around these mountains that were to the north, a good distance to the north. You can't see the mountains from Serenity. They're well on the other side of the huge forest that's north of Serenity, which Serenity is slowly starting to go up there. Serenity's always been below that forest, but is slowly eating upwards. And some of that forest is going in more and more cities building around the lake. Remember, the Mage Towers is north of the lake. Strandy Keep is on the bottom corner. Artemis is on the other corner of the lake, so they're like kind of in a triangle around this lake. Cities, Serenity's always been south of those woods, but more and more of the woods is getting eaten back to build more of the kingdom. Huge woods, though. They travel on. They've been traveling several weeks, like I said, at this point. I was explaining what happened over those weeks. When they are struck with a problem, the path stops. And not only does it stop, it stops at a wall. A big wall the side of a mountain. Like, it's the. Imagine if, again, the brick in question going through the snow stopped. And somebody pulled it back a bit and lifted it. There's a flat spot where it would have hit against. There's a chunk cut out of this mountain. And I want to say, when, it, when I say a chunk, it's no more than 15 or 20 feet high. It's not like half of a mountain. It's 15 or 20 foot high, probably about 30 feet wide, which is a good size road. Way bigger than you normally find in a medieval style setting, unless you're in a city. Out in the middle of nowhere, it's going to be a bit of a thinner road, maybe if anything wide enough that you know, two carts could pass each other without going off the side. But a huge something like this is not something you'd find out in the middle of nowhere, especially in the mountains. But sure enough, it comes stopping at a cliff. They assume it's a cliff. Upon further inspection, they realize it's doors. It is an interesting door because the door appears to be a quad. Allow me to explain. The door is four pieces, not two. So it's almost like there's like something in the middle, and two doors come like this, and two doors come down, and the middle thing is kind of where they, they click. There are, of course, things on the door, some type of glyphs and runing and such. Uh, Edwin and Magnus spend some time looking over it. Um, they believe that the writing is magical in nature, though it is no form of writing either of them has any experience with. Everybody takes a turn trying to look at it. The two they really hoped they'd get some hope for were the two elf uh, Templars of time. Because no one knows how old they are. I can tell you it is very, very old. 
But even they're like, nope, never seen anything like it. They don't talk much. But, mm, don't say anything. Um, they can talk. They just don't really do it. So they have to find a way to open this door, or they're going to have to spend weeks going all the way back around. They're in a mountain, they have, or try to climb over the mountains. They don't have a whole lot of mountain climbing gear. They brought some. They're not fools. They have a chest of holding. They have a ton of supplies in there. In fact, if I remember correctly, because there are so many of them, they did bring a second barrel of pickled fish. Um, if I remember my, my key moments of that adventure, there was a second barrel of pickled fish brought just in case of an emergency. <laughs> Happy memories of the pickled fish. So they take the time to research it. And they're looking. And it doesn't appear to be magically locked. And it's Magnus who draws some attention to it. That... It's still it's caked in dust and dirt, like they're wiping it off some. They deduce they can touch it first and cast spells and such and touching it. And Magnus says that the door gives off a slight magical hint. Like essence. Like you know, I'm detecting magic, a very faint magical essence on the door, but it doesn't come across like it's a trap or something. And across inspecting it, they find that there are some very thin cracks in the door. Um, could be pressure from the mountain shifting, merge world being created, who knows? But whatever it is, the door is almost spider-webbed in these thin cracks. Darsh takes a few hits at it, and he's like, it's way too sturdy to break. Cracks or not, I'm not busting through this. That's, that's not possible. What Marcus and Edwin deduce is that it's possible that the door may have been more magically guarded, but whatever the damage is to the door has weakened it so that they believe they could potentially open the door. Now, for those of you who don't know D&D stuff, I'm going to There is a wizard spell called Knock. And Knock can unlock or open a magically locked or barred door. Even an unmagically locked or barred door. Um, but it's kind of a versus situation. The caster of knock versus the strength of the spell of, of the caster who locked it. You know what I mean? Who's stronger? Like, is my knock spell a tenth level wizard versus someone who locked it who's an eighth? I got a good chance of doing it. Tenth level knock versus a twenty level wizard, much less of a chance. Always a chance for success. Always a chance for failure. It's I, it is important to me that in every Dungeon Dragon situation, there's always a chance. There's no perfect. Right? It may be 1% chance. Like you're a level 20 wizard trying to knock a door that was lo locked by an apprentice level 1. There's a chance. You just did a really good job. And you just don't open it. You know? Same time, 100th level wizard. God, cast a spell on this door. There's the tiny chance your spell might break through. It can happen. But in this situation, um, Edwin's a decent level mage at this point. But Marcus is, is much more experienced. Marcus is an older mage. Remember, bald head, big old beard. He did not bring his personal protectors in this situation. Because, I mean, he's walking with all these guys. He really doesn't need them. 
in case anybody asks, he did not bring his spell guard with him. They were assigned to other mages temporarily while he was gone. He and Edwin cast the spells, and sure enough, they're able to open the door. When I, when I say open the door, <clears throat> it opens very oddly. Sure enough, the four pieces don't just pull apart. They actually spin. So the four pieces, and as they spin, it almost like an like an uh, like a camera's iris opening. If you know what if you know what I'm talking about, like the the, the camera opening up and becoming a, a round portal, and that's what happens. But it appears to be made of stone, um, but not the same stone as the mountain. It seems like very sturdy. And sure enough, when they're looking inside of this, the door's thick. They, it would have been hard. And again, you imagine that as they spiral, they're like almost wrapping and doubling in size. So as they open up, there's like thick, thick, thick. There's a space in between. So it's a very hard door to open, especially if it had been properly inspelled. Um, the door does not open all the way. Opens pretty big. Darsh can step through just fine. But had it opened all the way, Darsh would have had a hard time touching the top of it. Like I said, it's, it's a pretty big door. They have a conversation. Do we go through this door? Obviously, they're going to go through the door. I brought them here for a reason. They're not stupid. But <laughs> why? I, what else do we do? The option is spend several weeks going all the way back, or do we try to use this to go through? We're going to have to try. Maybe it's some type of a road. It's whatever. We just have to be careful. So everybody starts lighting up some torches because it's dark inside, right? There's no light that they can see. But from what they can see, it appears to be a pretty large chamber. Quan and Dandy go in first, followed immediately by Edwin and Marcus, who are detecting magic while they are checking for tracks. In the room, they find nothing. No traps, no specific magicness at all, except on the other side of the room is another one of these doors. Now, this door is in worse shape than the first one. It's cracked a lot more. And they, looking around the room, there are some small pieces of rubble, 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 <laughs> where they can look up and see part of the roof is caved in a little bit. It doesn't look like it's going to fall on them right now. It's not a, we have to run through here, it's going to cave in. That is not the situation I'm building here. What I'm trying to show is that this is very, very old and has not been upkept in a long time. The room is thick with dust. You know, as the earth shakes, earthquakes, things move, dust will come off and, and thick with dust. There are no footsteps. There's nothing to imply. Anything has been in this chamber in a long time. In fact, when they open it up, the air is relatively stagnant. Stale. It's a good-sized chamber with another door on the other side. The door is in weird shape. In fact, one part of it has literally fallen, but inward. So they can see a space leading in. Now, at first glance, Dandy, because Dandy's the only one of this group that's actually a character. The rest of them are NPCs. Dandy's, Dandy's looking at this, and she's like, okay, can Darsh fist fit through this hole? Yes, Darsh can fit through this hole perfectly fine. Uh, he would, he'd have to probably crawl through it. Um, most of the humans could just crouch and step over, because the door's fallen, but there's still a piece there. Uh, the Minotaurs would probably have a little bit of a hard time getting through, but everybody could fit through here relatively easy. Does the door look like they could open it any further? It doesn't. It looks so damaged that it's partially collapsed in upon itself. 
like it's like everything started to shift and fall and then one piece literally fell backwards inwards so they can see the in inside and what dandy with what little torch she's doing it appears that the it goes a good distance it looks like a very long tunnel still just about as wide as what it was coming up the mountain path hello banana welcome sir They go back and report to the rest of the team. They did not find anything magic. The door had no magic on it. Again, Marcus and Edwin believing the damage to the door has basically negated the spell. A spell that would have locked that probably dissipated once the door was open. Most spells that lock things automatically turn off when, it, when you open the door. The door's destroyed. Same situation. Mercy... Artemis, Darsh, Danny get to talk, and they decide, yes, we're going to go ahead and go through here. We really don't have any other choice. Um, we'll leave this back door open. So that way, you know, the air situation, in case there's an air problem, we can always come back out if we need to. They make their way in. Everybody comes to this room. Again, the room seems rather roundish. With the door on the other side. There's nothing in the room other than some more of that carving on the walls. Um, Edwin and Marcus spent a little bit of time on that. Just, you know, cast Magnus. I keep saying Marcus. Magnus. Keeps uh, doing a little bit of stuff on there. You know, anything magical of that? They don't find anything magical. Um, the only thing they can tell from the writing um, is that it is very, very, very old been there a very long time and some of it's even chipped and fall off as the earth is settled and shifted so everybody comes in the chamber they start making their way through this wall Darsh takes some pushes on it and such just to make sure that as he's going through the whole heavy rock isn't going to collapse on him but it's already collapsed in such a way that it's it's pretty firmly in place he couldn't open this door if he wanted to um, but he's able to he's able to get through um, it's actually dandy that goes first Immediately followed by Darsh, immediately followed by Edwin. Those three go in first, so right off the bat, we got someone checking for regular traps, someone checking for magical traps, and someone who can do a whole lot of damage in case there's something on the other side of that door that they just don't see right now. They are in a cave, and monsters do live in caves. I'm known to put monsters in caves. <clears throat> they make their win. And this time, Marcus finds some actual magic. There's again writing on the walls. But the when he casts his detect magic, they start to light up a little bit and start to go off down the distance. Uh, he can't tell if it's just something to be read or it's something that's supposed to be guiding them. But again, it's type of runic writing. It's not like uh, Tobias runes. Those... You just look at those, you know it's a bias room. But it's just some type of writing that they don't understand. But it does glow a bit once he casts magic on it. He's still not able to read it, though. Even his spells that allow them to comprehend language is not working on this for some reason. Everybody else starts coming through. I know Midnight, it's very scary. My kitty's concerned at this part of the story. Squish, 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 squish. I gotcha, I gotcha. <laughs> just being squeaky so everybody starts coming through Dandy doesn't find any regular traps anywhere they proceed to go down the tunnel now they're 
30, 40 feet before they hear the noise behind them. I know. Hush. And the noise is relatively loud. Darsh and Dandy and a couple other people go rushing back. And looking through the hole in the second door, they can see that the first door has closed. They discuss, should we go back and try to open it? They're like, well, let's not worry about it. We've got to go either way. We'll try this way. If we can't, we'll try to come back and close it. Or try to open it again. They continue on. But it did close. Because I'm that kind of a DM. They travel a good day, day and a half. They're traveling... I mean, yeah, it's hard to tell that underground. The elves are more at home than anybody, and Mercy's fine with her sea stuff uh, when, when it's dark. But they have a lot of torches, and uh, there's even some magical light that some of them have. Hello, Rocket. So as they're making their way through this, the tunnel does not change in size, nor shape, or anything. It is consistent. They are not going up. They're going 100% flat, which in itself is relatively impressive. Even a dwarf will tell you that trying to mine into a mountain, relatively smooth cut, because it's still got that square edges. It's not a round room. It's a square-edged room. To maintain that size, that shape, and to stay level, pretty impressive. But they did it. After about a day and a half, they find themselves, again, not at, at another one of those doors, but this door is open. It's already sitting open. Hey, Dark. So it's already sitting open. And from looking, there's no footprints, again, nothing. It looks like it's been open for a while. Whether it was supposed to be or not, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I know, but they don't. I should have said they don't know. They can't tell if it was supposed to be open, but this one's all the way wide open. They have no problem. It, it slid back enough that they could just go right through. And when they do, they're in another one of those round chambers. This chamber, though, very, very different. This room is very well, at one point, was very well decorated. Now, there were probably tapestries and such on the walls of some kind. Most of them have fallen at this point and are barely ash on the ground. Uh, first glance, no one's been in this room for at least a couple hundred years. This is a very, very unused room. It is the whole the whole place has had air, but it's been stagnant air, right? There's air in here. There's a lot of it, and they try to keep moving, so they want to suck it all up. A pre-gift for you. I don't know what that means, Dark, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, they get inside of this place, right? And they look around. There's probably the remnants of tables and things. They appear to be made out of stone, uh, so they've lasted a little better. Uh, there may have been chairs. It's hard to tell with the rubble on the ground, but, you know, there's stuff. But as they're looking around, you know, they're trying to find things. What they do find, the top of the tapestries... There are hooks that were holding metal bars. The metal bars are still up there. Uh, they don't appear rusted or anything. They seem very well made. Looking at them, they're probably made of like gold or, or, or really well iron. Like they're decorative. They wish I could see those tapestries, but they're not there anymore. 
and there is um, what else? That the tables. There were several different like stone chairs that were carved into the wall, and when they look at them, they look like they're a little bit bigger than human size. You know what I mean? They're not uh, quite as big Darsh size, but they're definitely bigger than... They're kind of in, halfway in between. So either really big humans or really small minotaurs. It'd be something along those lines, right? Kind of a half and half. Um, but they, they, they're kind of cut back into the wall. So if you sat down into them, the wall would be kind of at your side. Now those rune things I was talking about, the writing goes, once it gets to this room, it comes down the wall and wraps all the way around the base of the wall. And when it gets to those little alcoves where the seating is, they go up and over it, because they're domed. So it's like a rounded opening, you sit back into the chair. And it's a stone chair, they may have had cushions or blankets or something on it that was more comfortable down the road, but again, all you see in there at this point are the uh, stone. Now, it's possible that there was cloth and things in here before they opened up that door. A tomb that has been sealed airtight for a very long time. Once you open the door and the air rushes in, anything that is cloth or leather will into dust. This is a fact. Uh, while I was in China uh, visiting the tomb of uh, the Ming emperors, that's one of the things I learned. When they open up those tombs, everything that was cloth and leather into dust. Air just destroyed it. So if they opened up that outer door, they could have caused some problems. Um, so let's see. Yes. Hello, Alibaba's. So, that's what they see going most of the way around the room. On the other side of the room is another door. This one is different, though. While it still appears that it might have been the same size door as what the other ones were. This door is a little bit more of a metallic door that you would open and close. Um... The door itself has the same writing going all around it. It's 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 a metal door. Everything else was stone. It is a metal door. Two metal doors that are closed. Um, but they seem to fit just perfectly in there. Like, there's no crack around those. There's no space. There's no door handle. But there is a wheel. A metal wheel that could be turned. It's uh, kind of smack dab in there. It's kind of like if they turned the wheel, it would unlock, and then the two doors would either slide out or open inwards. They definitely don't come out towards them. They would go away from them, if you would. There's no hinges on their side. This is what they see. Is, this is what Dandy and Quan, Edwin, and Magnus. I keep saying Marcus for some reason. It's Magnus. <laughs> Thank you, Rocket. I actually have about 14 of them around the house. All over the place. There's one there. There's one there. One there. Two down there. <laughs> but, uh... This is what they see as they first enter the room. The middle of the room appears to be relatively empty. stone-looking, right? Except in the middle, there's almost like a little bit of a bubble. Little bit of a bubble. Probably about six feet wide. Just a little bit, almost like a pitcher's mound in baseball. Little bit of a bubble. Just enough noticeable. 
All right? It's like six feet around, but it's probably only six, eight inches high. So it's just a, you can see that. Again, dust everywhere, no signs of anything. Like that anybody's been through here. No signs of anything like footprints or anything like that. Danny and Quan go in first. Okay. Magnus, Edwin at the door casting their spells. As soon as they cast their spells, all the runes light up again. Danny and Quan were only partway into the room when they're doing this. And as soon as they do, a noise like steam goes off. And that pitcher's mound thing, they hear something moving on it. Thank you, Christian Alves, for the sub. Um, they hear like a hissing noise that kind of comes from that. And they can see the top of it, something opens. And something comes up out of it. Now, the thing that comes up out of it is almost like a, a pedestal. Comes up smooth. Um, again, if you look at where it stops, it would be right at stomach level for someone half the size between a minotaur and half the size of a human. You know what I mean? It's a little bit tall for a human, but it's a little bit short for a minotaur. The pedestal itself is thin. The hole that comes up, opens, is almost the exact same. Uh, and on top of it is a flat disc, probably just a couple inches thick. Comes up. And above that disc, there's like a, like a, a half of a ball you'd see sticking out of that disc. Right, so the, the thing comes up. The ball's almost the same size as the as the base, and the disc is extends that. And as soon as it gets up, there's another hiss, and that ball lights up, and moves upwards and starts floating and just slowly spinning over top of this little pedestal. Dandy and Quan get the hell out of there quick, because if that's about to start shooting magic or lasers or something, they don't need that in their lives. So they get back out of there. You Sammy Boy for this up. So they, they back out of there as quickly as they can. Everybody's watching, telling what's happening. It just seems to stay that way. Nothing else is happening. It's not doing anything. The thing that's swirling has uh, like, a, uh, like a purplish hue to it, which is the same color that the letters would, were glowing a little bit when the magic hit those. Nothing seems to happen in the room, so they start being careful and working their way back in again. More people come into the room this time. Once they check it and they verify that they spend a few minutes doing all the checks you do, checking for traps, detecting magic. Yes, the thing in the middle detects very strong magic, as does the door with the little spinny wheel on it. As do the chairs. A lot of magic in this room. There's a big door on the other side. How are they going to get through? Darsh goes over and Danny's checked it for traps. Doesn't find anything. They already know the door's magical, but they don't know if it's trapped or not. Darsh decides to try. And he gets in there and he... Darsh is the strongest person in this room. And he takes it and he's just... Everything he's got, but that thing does not turn at all. Does not move. The mages and our heroes check out... That globe, the globe thing that's spinning. I say it's like a globe, there's no map, but it's a, a ball. 
And it's swirly lights, like I said. It doesn't appear to be any type of specific pattern on it. Nothing readable. There's some more of those glowy runes around the dais next to it. The bowl that it, fl it floats up, it leaves a bowl space, but there's nothing in that. Seems perfectly smooth. No lines, no cracks, no anything. And Danny's like, should I touch it? And the wizards look at her in horror, like, what? Mercy Arm is like, no. Not yet. It's <laughs> like, how have they lived this long, you know? That is not something you... Look at that. You don't touch that. <laughs> Danny gives that look like, man, I touch all the things, and I'm still standing here. What are you talking about? I've touched way weirder looking things than that, and I'm still alive, so I don't even want to hear about it. <laughs> but... Sure enough, they've searched the room. They find nothing. There's no secret hidden compartments. There's no items that they can find. There's no anything. All that there is is this ball. So they figure, okay, we're going to have to do something with this ball. Do we try to knock it down? Do we try to push it with a weapon or a tool? Mercy's had some bad experiences with that. It definitely radiates very strong magic. The mages can say that, but they have no idea what it does looking at it. So it is determined they are, in fact, going to touch the ball. I love it when they decide to just do things like that. It makes me so happy. Mercy decides it's her job to touch the ball. Everybody stand back. And for her, she's got to reach up. Because, again, remember, Mercy, Mercy Artemis and Dandy are all small. A lot of the humans in these group are even small for humans. Mercy is relatively short. She reaches up. She's going to do this. Darcy's like, you sure you don't want me to do it? He's like, no. You stand back behind me in case I look like I'm getting shocked or something. You yank me off of it. I'm like, okay. Darcy's ready to do that. The mages are like, well, we can't find anything else to do, but we really don't think this is a good idea. They're like, it's fine. We do this for a living. Trust me, I've got a lot of hit points. <laughs> Mercy puts her hands on the ball. As soon as she does, all of the writing letter rune things start to glow much brighter purple. Um, and the ones around those chairs start throbbing a little bit. Mercy lets go. That stuff still continues. She's like, okay, that didn't hurt. I'm okay. Nothing bad happened. She's like, now I'm going to touch it and see if I can move it. So it, feel, it looks like it's swirling and moving, but once she touches it, it keeps doing that. She realizes that's what's in, it's inside of it. It feels like a, like, a, like a very thick glass, but the swirling thing that makes it look like the, it's moving is really whatever's inside of it. It's staying in one place. So she puts her hands on it. She tries pulling it towards herself, and it does not move. It's in floating in air. It's not touching anything, but it will not move. She tries pushing it. Left, right, doesn't work. So then she tries turning it. And as soon as she starts to turn it, a loud, squeaking, grinding noise comes from that metal door, and everybody's, draws, everybody's got their weapons out in the right fight. Sure enough, they can see that that metal wheel is turning, so she stops does it again. It turns a little bit again. She's like, okay, this controls that door. Okay. All right. We figured that out. I'm going to open the door. 
Everybody takes their positions. Darcy's ready to attack whatever's on the other side of the door. Danny's ready to check for traps. Mage is ready to cast spells. Artemis is ready to heal whoever gets killed by whatever behind the door. <laughs> you know, all these things. Mercy starts moving. Now, is Mercy moving this, spinning it? No tension against it at all. She, the, the tiniest bit of pressure is doing more than Darsh could do. It's just <laughs> lightly, and it still makes that very loud noise. Because again, it sounds like it, it looks like it's not been up kept in a wall in a while. But then she gets to a point where it stops, and there's a huge click, and then there's more of that steam noise, and the metal doors open. But they don't open outward like they expected them to because they saw no hinges. The doors literally slide backwards and then open up. So, kind of thing. But they're very slow when they do that. They go back probably about six inches and then they slide to the sides. On the other side is only darkness. Dandy and the mages make their way up there. May just start first. The doors still radiate magic just about as brightly, but the other side of the door is very dark. A little too dark. That's important. Now you could say that maybe the elves and such could see through there with their improvision. They're standing in a room with a lot of uh, humans that have torches, so there's no improvision when you're standing in torches. That's not how improvision works. You can't do that. Your eyes can't be in both spectrums at once. Again, second edition. Couldn't tell you what fifth does. Second edition, you can't be using improvision when you're standing in light. Just doesn't work that way. So, Danny takes a torch and starts making her way through. And she, when she goes to the door, she's shocked. See, that on the other side of it, she can't see the roof or the walls or anything. All she's seeing is a, a little bit of what is probably a really big room. She reports that to everybody behind her. Like, okay. Danny starts checking for traps. Nothing in front of her. They've not found any traps anywhere at this point. There's nothing that would inhibit them. Nothing at all that would inhibit them from coming in here. It was at this moment that they finally asked me a question I've been waiting for the whole time. Because I love it when they forget to ask something relatively obvious. They've gone through a door that was cracked. They went through a door that was partially broken. They went through a door that was all the way open. They went through this fourth door. It was big metal and squeaky that they had to use a magic globe thing to open. And it was then that Artemis asked, Do any of these doors look like they could be opened from the other side? And I was like, nope. Every single one of these doors on the side that you don't come in from looks completely smooth, devoid of any way of opening. There's no door knocks. There's no writing on them. There's no squeaky wheel. There's nothing on the other side of any of these doors that would imply you could go the direction you came from. I really thought they'd ask that earlier. But they didn't. Suddenly, their concern 
grows slightly stronger. Not knowing what else to do, they decided to continue checking out this new chamber. Because the assumption is that I haven't brought them in here just to kill them. Because if I had, what fun is that? Why would I, I've, I never set out to kill anybody. And that's something I stress all the time. I never planned to kill anybody. It can still happen. I do put them in situations where someone might get killed. But I never purposefully put them in a situation where they're going to die. None of the main four characters. I'll kill an NPC in a heartbreak. Heartbeat. If I can kill an NPC and it'll have an effect on you, I will do that in a heartbeat. Um, but not a regular character. I never automatically plan on killing your character. Sometimes I'm just lucky and it happens. So, as a players, they had faith that I was not bringing them into a place that they were never able to escape from. But their characters were more concerned. It's a very dark room. Danny's torch doesn't show her anything other than the walkway, the regular width moving forward. Although in this situation, she's not seeing any of those letters of any kind. She's looking through the door. She's looking through the door. Moving her torch. Moving her torch. Torch lights only give off so much light. Unlike in the movies where torch lights lighting up a whole room. Doesn't quite work that way. For the record, I've tried. Torch does not do that. It only gives you so much light. They cannot find anything in that. She didn't go in. She was very careful not to go in. She was just leaning in and looking, checking the floor. The floor looks like dusty rock, no footprints, no nothing there. They decide they're going to try to move forward. Door's wide open. The globe is still floating up there, being all globity. Oh, bye, Rocket. Thanks for coming by. Being all globity. It didn't change colors, didn't do anything different. It's still sitting up there. They decide to move on. Dandy is the first one to step through the door. And immediately something happens. Those same letters start to light up. Except before, where they used to glow, it's like they're like light, 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 light. Imagine if light bulbs behind each one were going on. It's not light bulbs. I'm using an example. But it's like light, light, light. And as they're going on, they're staying on. And there's like a click with each one. It's a click, 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 click. It's not like... It's like slow. And as, But it's, they can also see them starting to pop up in other parts around this chamber. And then there's another one of those big steam noises. And a loud hum kicks in. And above them, way up in the center of this chamber, a light begins to radiate. And slowly goes brighter and brighter until this entire massive cavern open. I say cavern, it is not natural round room, almost globe-like. Again, almost a circle. Except... But this thing is so big, as the light's coming down, they can see that what they're standing on at this point is actually a bridge. And the lights can, can go down, and they see that looking over, 
it's a very far drop. The bridge goes forward to a center area, which is rounded. And then there are some more, there's again, like a cross. It goes all the way across the room, and then in the middle of it, there's another cross. And in that center, there are stairs that go up in four different directions, the opposite of where the straights are. So if this is north, south, east, west, are the straight bridges across this room. They go up northwest, southeast. You know, they, they go up on those angles. So you're looking at a steering wheel. They go up the, the X while the steering wheel's across. Hopefully that makes sense. And they can see that there are maybe what looks like walkways on different levels around this room. Stairs lead up to these. There's more stairs that lead up to those. And the light, while is a not super bright, it's a comfortable glow. You can see everything in here perfectly fine at this point. No need for improvision. You can probably put the torches out and see perfectly fine. But the light seems to glimmer off of many things around this round room. They've obviously stopped moving. <laughs> Looking around, I describe all this to them as I'm describing it to you. And they're like, okay. Let's move towards that middle area again. <laughs> this is their motto. This was their motto every time. We move forward cautiously, quietly, and checking for traps. That's the three things. I'm like, all right, what do you guys do? We're going to move cautiously, quietly, search for traps. They do that. But again, there are no traps that they find. Now, when Magnus and Edwin begin to start casting their spells to detect for magic, they're both cry out. Like, everybody's like, what? Are you okay? What's going on? They're like, as soon as they begin to cast their spell, it's like they got shocked. Like, strong. Not enough to hurt, but enough to be like, like make them a little woozy. And they're like, should we try again? Mercy and Artemis are like, mm, let's wait on that. Let's wait on that. Hold on a second. Artemis says, I'm going to try casting a spell. They're wizards. I'm a cleric. This could be some type of temple thing. Maybe cleric magic's okay. Wizard magic is not. A fair assumption. Clerics and mages both have some of the same spells. They both have a detect magic spell. And there are situations where mage magic may work where clerics may not, or vice versa. I thought that was a very good thought that they came up with. So she casts detect magic. But as she tries. As soon as she does, she gets the same shock thing. That is... Almost makes her pass out. It makes her woozy. Mercy has to grab her, hold her up for just a second. It didn't cause her physical pain, mind you. It's more like a hardcore vertigo that just shakes you to the core. It's a situation that blatantly is not letting you cast magic. This negates their mages and their clerics. Right? So they got two mages, three clerics, and a paladin in here. Because they got Miyasha's the other cleric. 
than a paladin and the two mages. So yes, there's a lot of there's magic. And they don't tell them to try. That's enough. Weston is there. Weston is still carrying the hammer of truth. He's yet to use it to hit anything. Doesn't even know what it does. He just knows he has it. But he's also got his regular weapon. He's normally a, a sword wielder, if I remember correctly. He's a big two-handed sword, if I remember correctly. He had a huge sword. But he's got this hammer strapped on his belt. It's uh, surprisingly light for him. Anybody else picking it up? Relatively, it's not a Thor thing. It's not you can't pick it up. Anybody can pick it up, but it definitely is lighter for him. So they don't get they don't try casting any spells. They decide not to try any magic items. Nothing like that. They slowly start making their way forward. At this point, it's just Dandy doing regular trap checks. She finds nothing at all. Very smooth. The light stays on. The letters that were glowing are still all glowing. And they get to the middle of this room. And they reach this dais in the middle of this big round chamber. And the path continues on to the other side. And they can see the other side now. I mean, they can see the whole thing. There's another door on the other end. That reminds them much of the door they just came through. The other two ways do not go to doors. They stop, and then they kind of that little bit of a, a room there. The shimmery parts on the wall, some are larger than others, some are smaller, but they're all like you could walk around and there'd be some type of shimmery thing. Again, almost like uh, a little waterfall. And lights reflecting off a little waterfall. Nothing at this point, other than trying to cast magic, as, as in this entire place has tried to do anything to them. Nothing's hurt them. That didn't even cause them physical pain as much as almost make them pass out from dizziness. None of them lost a hit point from any of that, from the D&D, to give you an idea. There's no actual physical damage whatsoever. Uh, stream runs about another 15 minutes on average, and then I'll give 5 or 10 minutes for questions. Um... Also, if we do questions and I don't have time to answer all your questions, you can post them on the Merge World thread of the Discord channel, and I will do my best to answer them all for you there as well. So, throwing that at you. We're going to run about another 15 minutes. Now, they're inspecting these things. They're inspecting everything they can. They're looking for anything that stands outside the normal. And upon close inspection... They have noticed that the thing that they're walking on has a couple very thin cracks in it. Very likely to be caused by age, maybe an earthquake. It's still mighty sturdy, but there are a couple little thin cracks in it. Nobody jumps up and down on it, but I mean, there's... 18 people standing there and three of them are minotaurs. Like, they're obviously, it's holding weight. It's not creaking. It's stone. They can't see if there's supports under it or not, but they know they can see that there's a little bit of what appears to be cracking. Here at the center, as I mentioned, there's stairs going up to the higher rings. Or you could walk around the outer edge. And as soon as they step in the center... A little hole thing opens up. There's a steam sound. And another one of those dais things come up. With a ball floating over it. This one. Red. 
a bright crimson red swirling inside of it. Mercy's like, I really don't want to touch that one. I really don't. It just looks very bloody. It looks just looks it's not appealing. It does not look inviting. The other one looks kind of inviting. This one does not. Okay, we're not going to test anything. We can't magically test anything. Let's look around. Because that may be what opens up the door on the other side. So the groups split up a little bit. And we didn't... We, we check this out. But Mercy and Artemis, a couple of folks, they decide they're going to go and check on the other door. Right? Darsh and, and some of the, they're breaking up a little bit and they're going to go up and they're going to check these different stairs and see what they can get up there. Thank you, Jin Bradley Manangan. Manangan. I apologize if I said that wrong. Thank you for the sub. I appreciate it. <laughs> but. Several things kind of all happen at once. Nothing bad. I'm just, I'm explaining what all these things happen at the same time. Mercy and several of her knights and Artemis, and she takes Magnus with her. They go to check the door, like I said, the other door to see if there's a way to get through. Darsh breaks up. Some of the people break up and go check up the stairs. Edwin stays back there along with Miasha and a couple other folks, and they're checking those things out. Mercy and them reach this door at the end and immediately can tell there's something wrong with it. It's, it looks like it's starting to open. Um, Mercy would not be able to fit through the crack that she can see, like in the space in the doors. Remember I said it, it kind of pushed in and then opened? It's like it's pushed in and just started to and then stopped. And when she's looking at it, and she's looking at the two doors, one seems almost like it's a little bent forward, like it tried to open and jammed. The other side of the room, she can see a dark room, but another one of those balls, the yellow one, kind of floating over top of a pedestal. It looks much like the room they just came in right on the other side. She's, just, she's seeing this through a crack. She's, in her armor, she could not get through that. Mercy's relatively well-endowed as well. It's, they rolled. It's their thing. People think I'm weird. They asked what size they were. I said, what size do you want to be? They said, let's roll for it. They rolled. So, <laughs> she's not going to fit through there. Um, Darsh, definitely not. Dandy probably could. Dandy's probably one of the only people here that could. Is there anybody else that's tiny? No, everybody's big. Dandy's the only one that could fit through there. She did not come with them. She's out looking around. Speaking of Dandy, she's with Darsh. And they're up walking around. They get up to the top of these stairs, which, again, occasionally they can see a thin crack in them, but they look very sturdy. From here, they can look down, and they can see underneath the road, because they've moved away from it, the, the road path. And they can see that there's a, a big metal... Or not metal, sorry, stone. Big stone, round, probably pillar, that holds up that center dais that everything's connected to. So they're like, there's none underneath of those... Uh, the, the roads themselves, there's a big one in the middle that's probably the main support. Dandy is a Kender. Dragon Lance Race. They continue up the stairs and they're looking around. 
And it's a little bit darker up here. Oddly enough. Because when they get up here, they can tell, they can really see it from down there. They get up there that there's a little bit of an overhang. Because obviously I said people could walk around it. So the overhangs are, uh, for you to walk on that, there has to be one above. So the light's causing some shadow. They can see that there's places in the wall where look like almost like a, a, a perfect hole, like a circle that goes down on an angle. And they're like, well, maybe a torch or something could go in there. But they're really, really perfectly round. But yes, you could put like a torch or something in there that could probably light this up a little bit better. And they've got some torches. They don't try. They're carrying them. Like, the last thing I want to do is stick a torch in there and break something. They have a torch. They're looking around. And... Dandy, who has a torch, gets up and she starts looking at one of those shimmery things. Now this thing is a seems relatively round, right? Like half, like rounded, but then comes flat to the floor, perfectly smooth. And she sees that the shimmering thing is just from looking at it. It looks like it's solid. And so she gets up real close and she's trying to use the torch to see if she can see inside of it. Darsh is checking out, again, a little bit around the room. He sees another one as well, and he's Jorn's with him. And he's talking to Jorn about this. And you ever seen anything like this? No, in all my travels, I've never seen anything quite like this. The walls are too smooth. I don't see how anyone would take in years to carve this room out. I can't believe that, you know, things of that nature. I've been in the Dwarven Kingdoms, and it's never been quite this smooth. Jorn's like, I know you took me that one time. I was like, yes, but I'm just saying it's not quite like and Dandy's like, uh, Darsh? Yes, Dandy. I, uh, I think there's a problem. Darsh's like, oh? And he turns and goes, what's wrong? His hand kind of falls to the hilt of his sword. She's like, um, shimmery thing. And Darsh is like, what? He's like, come on over here. And he comes over, and as he gets really close, he leans in to look. And she holds up the torch. And the shimmery thing almost looks like it's a thick... About that thick is what it would appear. But when she gets close, he realizes it's not actually solid. But it's a very shimmering form of almost like magic. Uh, but that's not the problem. The problem is the light reflecting on the beholder floating on the other side. Anybody know what a beholder is? The beholder, its spherical body, probably seven and a half to eight feet in width, slightly larger than the average one, has one large central eye split giant mouth full of teeth and tentacles come off the top of its head eyes at the end of each one Darsh stumbles back and whips out his sword again he's like stop don't move a whole lot and he's like is it alive she's like I don't know he has his sword out and he gets closer he looks at Danny look at each other and they both agree we're not touching whatever this thing is that's separating me from a beholder.
Darsh has his sword in his hand, but he's kind of leaning in a little bit. Danny lifts the torch up again. And they see the things in the tentacles aren't moving. They're completely in one spot. They're not moving at all. They're not like the wavy, what you'd expect from Beholder. They're just in one spot. And both of them sigh a sigh of relief. And then at the same time inhale sharply. Because the bodies are not moving. But the eye is looking at them. And when I say looking at them, it's looking from one. And then it's looking at the other. And then it's looking around past them. Darsh immediately calls out. A warning. Everybody. Weapons come out all over the place. Mercy hears this. She's like, oh, hell, what did they do? And they go rushing back to the center. Darsh starts telling everybody to get back down to the middle. No, Midnight. You gotta wait, baby. People rush back down to the middle area. Like, what did you see, Darsh? Because there's a beholder in there. I know what a beholder is. There's a beholder in there. And they say what they see. And they're like, this is a problem. Mercy says, there's a door over there, but it's not open all the way. It's very small. I don't know if we can open it. They then take a couple minutes. They're like, nothing's come up. The beholder thing hasn't come out yet. But they step away from that red board. They don't nobody gets close to that. Like, nobody touch anything. We need to know more what's going on. There are a lot of those shimmery things. Have we found a beholder honeycomb? Right? Like, what is this? Mercy says, I'm going to take Dandy and we're going to go in there and we're going to try to go in the room and see if we can get that door open. See if she can open it up. We need to know if there's a bunch of beholders up in there. So I need a couple of you guys to go up there and look around a little bit. Darsh is obviously going to go because he's the strongest and most damaging guy here in the group. The elves are staying with Artemis, the protector elves. They always go. She's going with Mercy. So all three of them are going there. Darsh is going up there. He's taking with him Weston, a little magic oomph of his own. Jorn's going. Nathalian is staying in the center dais with his bow out ready to cover both. The Knights of Serenity and everybody else just kind of spacing out. A couple people are going up with Darsh to check the other ones. Over the next few minutes, they start looking around. And Darsh does not find any more beholders. Behind the shimmering wally things that he sees that I said were different sizes. But he finds something behind every one of them. Some of the creatures Darsh sees, he has no idea what those are. Some of them are twice the size of a beholder. Some of them, size of dandy. With three mouths and several rows of teeth. Darsh sees creatures he's never seen before. He sees some creature that appears to be half dragon, half man. Reminds him a little bit of the dreams they had that one time. It was like the dragon centaurs. It looks kind of like that. Behind one, he even sees a dragon. At least the head of a dragon. One of the largest circles. In all of them, the creature's eyes are open. None of them physically move, but they can see the eyes following them when they move. Now at this point, 
Dandy has squeezed through that little door. The room she sees is exactly the same as the one that they came out of originally. There's a little globy thing. Sure enough, there's a door on the other side, but there's no way to open it. Dandy, with nothing else to do, they talk about it, nobody else can get through there, reaches up, she can barely reach the thing. So she's looking around, she's trying to what? So I think somebody threw a shield through, if I remember correctly. She leaned the shield against it and climbed up the shield. She was standing on the edge of the shield that was kind of leaning. She puts her hands on it, and she tries turning it. Now, unlike with Mercy, where it just turned lightly, it doesn't seem to want to turn. It moves just a little smidge, and as she's doing that, everybody at the door can hear it go like, like a rumbling, like it's trying to move. She sees the wheels on this side. She goes and she climbs back down. She goes, looks at the wheel. The wheel looks slightly bent. Not like somebody grabbed it, but the door itself is slightly bent. And again, it's that same kind of situation. We're looking at it. It's like the doors kind of, where they came apart, one of them came out crooked, was trying to curl up, and so it's jammed. Danny climbs back up, and she's trying hard this time, and she's trying to move it, and you can hear the door groaning like it wants to move. Because, again, this is a magic thing of just barely moving it would cause mechanisms or whatever to move. It's straining. It's trying to do this heavy thing. There's at first some fear that maybe they would get their fingers squished, but now they're like, well, we got to try and help pry this open. So <clears throat> the biggest people with Mercy right now is Seamus and Garrick, the Minotaur, came with her. And so they put their hands on and they're trying to pull it. And they can feel a little wiggle. It's thick, though, right? But both Seamus and Garrick have got some strength to them. Not Darth's strength, but pretty much. They're pulling as hard as they can. Well, Dandy's still doing her thing. And Darsh and his friends are looking around. No, Bragg, you should wait. I'll tell you one. So they're looking around and, and such. And Darsh is... Well, that's when he doesn't know what they're doing with the door. He's looking up there. And he gets around to another one of these things. And it's about the size of the Beholder one. And inside of it is a Gorgon, which some of you may better know as a, a Medusa. Darsh immediately averts his eyes. He's like, I looked at that and it didn't hit me. But maybe this magic thing's protecting me. I can't look at its eyes. I'm not looking to see if it's moving. He's like, okay, that monster I know. He starts making his way back to the Beholder. He's looking. He's got a torch. You can't really see through the thing unless you're holding a torch up. And it's shadow inside. You're only seeing part of the front part of them, the silhouette. It's like it's a darker chamber in there. And he's looking at it, and he looks down, and he sees that the lettering comes across, right? Remember I said the lettering goes across and all the way around and such? He's, and at that moment, he's like, <coughs> he wipes some dust away from his face. He looks back down, he's like, Where'd that dust come from? He looks up, he doesn't see anything. He gets down, he's, he's looking harder, and the beholder's still looking at him, but it's not moving. The eye still moves a little bit. The eye seems to be moving a little bit harder. He starts looking around it, and after just a couple of seconds, realizes that in the writing around the edge of... He can see small cracks in the stone. 
Danny heaves with all of her might. Minotaurs and everyone is pulling really, really hard. And finally the door shifts just enough that it's no longer on an angle. And slams open. Slams open. Hurls open with the strength of everything they were trying to put against it. Even the internal mechanism pulling as hard as it could. Bangs it enough that everything shakes just a little bit. And Darsh hears a noise almost like ice starting to crack. And he turns back looking at the beholder, and now he's starting to see the tiniest bit of cracks in the magic shield separating him from the creature. He turns about to yell, but as he looks across the room, he can see that some of the shimmering things are starting to blink in places. Just a little bit. And Darsh screams at everyone to get back down to the floor. And that's where we're going to stop for today. Interestingly enough, Almost the exact same spot that I stopped the day that we played this many years ago. But interesting fact, when I stopped playing at this spot, we didn't play again for almost three months. Because one of my players temporarily went to live in Canada with her fiancé. Now they're married. Um... And so she was gone for a while. So we didn't play for a few months until she came back. So this is almost the exact same spot that we left off there. We got just a smidge further, but not much. Hey, Patchy. All right, Brad, you said if you want to throw a couple questions at me, I'll answer a few of them for you now. And then if you have uh, any more, we'll answer a few of them. The rest I'll have you post on the Discord. Because I think you said you had like 20, and that's a little more than I have time to answer today. But, of course, anybody else has any other questions, please feel free to throw them in chat as well. Um, while I'm waiting for him to type out a couple of his questions, um, I will say thank you all for coming by and hanging out with me for the stream today. Uh, if you had a good time, please remember to click like. If you're new here, be sure to subscribe. If you have or know any single person out there who might like Merge World or d and I would be flattered if you wouldn't mind sending them our way. Whether you want to have them come watch it on YouTube, we, it's also available on iTunes and Spotify as a free audio podcast. Um, Definitely always looking for more listeners. If you know anyone you think might enjoy it, it would be awesome if you would send them that way. If you have iTunes or Spotify, it would be awesome if you would uh, consider going and giving it a follow or a like or a review or subscribe, whatever it is on the podcast thing of your choice. Uh, even if you listen to it here, it would definitely help me out I'm trying to grow a little bit of uh, following more on the audio side as well. Uh, let's see. A couple questions from Bragg. How do you get inspiration for your Merge Worlds games? Most of the time it's music. Most of the time it's music, and mostly when I'm driving. Uh, when I drive, a lot of times I'm writing the story in my head, and then I just go back and flesh it out on paper. Um, but music, not so much the lyrics, sometimes lyrics, but the mood. I already have a little bit of an idea of what I want to do, but then like inspiration hits me when I listen to music. Uh, mostly rock music, uh, and more inspiration has hit me from Breaking Benjamin and Three Days Grace than any other individual band. So 
I'll say that. Uh, you think you'll finish telling Merge Worlds by the end of 2021? No, because the goal is to keep writing it. I'm already writing new Merge Worlds content. Um, I hope to keep telling it forever if I can. Or at least until I run out of ideas, anyways. Uh, thank you, Ashley. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Homebrew for your first campaign? You can if you're writing it. There's nothing wrong with homebrew. My first campaign was a homebrew. As long as you know your rules and how you want things to run, there's nothing wrong with that. Turtle says, can you give a brief example of how you would describe to players walking into a dungeon room? That's going to depend on the dungeon. Um, kind of like what I just discussed there. As you're walking into the room, it's most you could tell you could tell it's large because the light of your torch can't you can't see the ceiling or the walls. That's a great way of of explaining that the room they're in is too big. It's really big because the light of their torch is not showing the ceiling or walls. They hear their footsteps echoing from the far distance, things of that nature. Um, and then if it's a regular dungeon, it's all about kind of describing your ambiance, right? You walk into the dungeon, it looks old and ragged. It's very well unkept. You can hear the moans of you know, prisoners from the distance, the rats squeak as they run across the floor, the smell of unwashed bodies and human filth assaults you. Uh, that's it. Or you could be like, you walk into the pristine, it's an elven dungeon. You walk into an ancient dungeon, if you're talking about not actual dungeon dungeon. Uh, you walk into this ancient building. Uh, the dust on the floor lets you know no one's been here. The air is stale. There's a, a feeling of pressure as you're deep underground. It just kind of depends on what type of what, you, what you're doing. But you want to set that mood, that ambiance that lets them know that it's bigger than life or it's huge or it's stinky and it's filthy. You want to set that, that tone for the rest of the dungeon with that first dungeon room, right? Uh, I like to think back to one of the early adventures where they were they went into the room and there was the doors were all these three-dimensional carvings of a war going on. They had to find the weapons that went into the walls, you know, describing that door and how the torches came down and there was aisles that lit up on fire kind of like in uh, uh, the first national treasure or anything that goes on like that. Uh, using references they'll understand. Movies, like a baseball field in size or a movie thing. You know, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, it's like this in that one thing. If it's something common enough that most people would understand it. Um, let's see. Share my games to theater in mind or should I run it in Roll20? I don't know what Roll20 is. I've never used it, so I wouldn't be able to answer that question. Uh, you're welcome to throw me in there as an NPC if you like. I'm cool with that. How you level your characters? That's hard to answer. Leveling The actual physical D&D side of things is 100% up to you. There's 100 different ways to do it. Uh, how do you keep track of everything going on at one time? I take pretty good notes. I take pretty good notes. A lot of it's bullet points. In this room, remember these things. And I will write notes to myself, you know, especially showing points like, this thing is huge. Express how huge it is, stupid. Or, or it's a, a dragon. Very scary. Duh. Like things to remind myself, fool, this is something you want to accentuate. But I try to do that. I spend a lot of time rolling it in my head building the scene before I ever come back and play it. Um, the stuff that I'm writing now on paper has been in my head for a couple of years, and I've changed it a hundred times, and I finally got it in a direction that I want it to be. Level should I play to? Totally up to you. You and your players, that's your play style. Um, again, Brad, I can't answer any of those questions. There is no best way. It's different for everybody. you you got to kind of jump in and try it, and if it don't, doesn't work, switch to another direction. Um, just you know, set that expectation with your players that we're going to do it this way, but if it doesn't work well, I may change it a bit in the future. There's nothing wrong with that. Improve upon your game as things moved on. When I first started Merge Worlds, I used God's 
of a of a pantheon that already existed in a fantasy world. Um, very soon, I created my own gods and took it my own path. But at the very beginning, I started with gods that already existed in a world that existed. D and D stores, gaming stores, great place. Probably with online forums. Probably find a D and D Discord somewhere. How do you anticipate your players' decisions and moves? It helps when you know your people. The longer you play with people, the easier it gets to predicting kind of what they're going to do. But there's always going to be a monkey wrench thrown in there somewhere. So I try to set paths, obviously. I want them to go in a specific direction. Even when I'm giving them choices, um, those choices still end up leading to where I need them to go in the long run. So... Um, Knowing your players is important. Building an adventure around your players is important. The biggest mistake I see a DM make is write an adventure and then say, hey guys, pick any characters you want and jump in there. Now you don't have enough mages to handle all the magic stuff you put in there. You don't have enough fighters to fight all the gnolls you threw in there. Uh, knowing the characters before you get into the... You can have your idea of a storyline, but before you start writing specifics, know what those characters are so you can write to their strengths. Um, save my players from a TPK. Tell them not to fail, but there's nothing... The only other option is to lie. Honestly. If you roll something that would kill them, don't tell them you rolled something that would kill them. I mean, if you want to avoid a TPK, don't give them stuff they can't fight. And if they do, you do bite off more than you can choose, start dumbing it down so it's easier for them to defeat. 150 hours these days, two months that you spent on your Merge Storytelling series on YouTube. Pretty good so far. I thought I'd be done by now. Or at least... To the other stuff. It took much longer than I thought. Cool. Alright. At that point, we're about 12 minutes over. If you have any more questions, if you will shoot them to me on the Discord channel, uh, you can go to my Discord by going to my website, onlydraven.com. There's a button at the top you can click on. Take you right in there. There's a thread specifically for Merge Worlds. I am always happy to answer any questions. Turtle has one last question. How exactly does combat work? I feel like combat gets boring pretty quickly. It can. It really can. As a DM, you've got to find ways to punch it up. Uh, don't just send waves after waves after waves of goblins at them. Because after everybody's killed eight goblins, it gets boring. Um, so mixing up what's fighting can be fun. It's like, okay, you've got two goblins, a hobgoblin, and an ogre. Okay, now we have to figure out who to attack first. Um, throw something funky in there. Something real funky. Right? You're fighting... Four goblins, two kobolds, and a draconian. One of those kobolds happens to have a ring of invisibility. Because you think about that. If you're going to find a ring of invisibility on a monster, that's because they have a ring of invisibility. An irritating creature that can't do much damage but is invisible becomes way scarier and way more interesting to have to fight in a fight. So throw things like that in there. If you're going to give something a magic item that the players are going to steal from them, let them use it some first. Maybe not the potions and stuff, the one-dose stuff. But if they've got a wand of magic missiles on them, shoot somebody with one once. Doesn't mean you got to kill them. You know, don't shoot them if the one will kill them. But I mean, you know... Give people an idea. That also helps them out a little bit because if they do loot them, they know a little bit of what they're getting. They may not know everything, but help them a little bit. So maybe they don't have as many uh, identify spells to identify what those magic items are. I know that's a wand of magic missile because you shot me with it three times. You can kind of help the players out that way. Give them, Let them use some of the magic stuff that your players are eventually going to get a hold of. Kobold with a Vorpal Sword would be the scariest thing in the world. Funniest moment encounter you've had in D&D? &D. 
Wagaga Gaga. But I'll explain that more in the Discord. All right, guys. I'm going to slide out of here. Thank you for hanging out with me today. I appreciate it. If you have questions, again, send by our Discord. Drop them in chat, and I will do my best to answer them as soon as I can. Like, subscribe, visit, hang out. Hit the Spotify and the iTunes as well. I appreciate all the support that everybody's been giving on this project, and I look very much forward to telling you more stories next Thursday. All right? You guys have yourselves a wonderful day, and I will talk to you later. Thank you for joining me with Merge Worlds. <laughs>